right. So let's officially start this, Greg. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really Pleasure. appreciate it. I've been waiting to talk to you for a long time. Um, all right. So how we start all the podcasts is I'm going to ask you a series of 10 rapid fire questions. Okay. Okay. Can't dance on the middle. You got to pick one or the other. Come okay. Here. Okay. Uh, dogs or cats? Dogs. Star Wars or Star Trek? I'm going to go Star Trek. Do you realize out of four seasons, you are the only Star Trek? Well, I started watching Star Trek. I started watching Star Trek before I saw Star Wars, so I got to be loyal to the. All right. All right. I got it. Uh, are you a Spock or a um, Captain Kirk guy? Kirk. Okay. You just went to space, you know. I saw that. 80, 90 years old or whatever. I know. Space. It's crazy. Um, Rolling Stones or Beatles? Rolling Stones. Coke or Pepsi if you drink soda? Uh, Coke. Beach or mountains? A beach. A PC or Mac as an author? Uh, Mac. Great. Uh, East Coast or West Coast? East Coast. Kramer or Costanza? <laughs> I guess Kramer. <laughs> Superman or Batman? Uh, Batman. And this is the last one. It's my favorite. Kardashians or Osbournes? No, Osbournes. Yeah, you got to go that all the way. Yeah, we came up with those questions just to get a general sense of who we're dealing with. Okay. You know, covers all the bases. All right. So you grew up, if I'm not mistaken, in New Jersey. Yeah, I spent most of my childhood in New Jersey. That's correct. The majority of it, yep. Okay. And then, then you kind of, from what I've gathered, you spent a lot of time in school. I just stayed in school longer than everyone else. That's true. (laughs) So we have something in common. We're fellow Terps. You were studied criminal justice at university of Maryland. I attended the university of Maryland. Yes. Okay. Do you want to explain the difference? Well, yeah, I didn't graduate. I mean, I spent, Oh, I I see. I see. I was there from, uh, from the fall of, 88 until about the spring of 90 had a very good time at the university of maryland enjoyed living in uh, ellicott hall and living nice. in hagerstown hall and lived in a fraternity house and uh it was a it was a very uh, eventful two years and then i uh, returned we're nowhere else, when I, i'll do my odd couple thing with nowhere else to go i returned home to my <laughs> mother's house uh, several years earlier my mother had thrown me out you know you know but yeah uh, and then i i transferred to Rutgers. basically i yeah i uh I uh, withdrew from the University of Maryland and, and uh, finished at Rutgers in New Jersey. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, it was, Mar- you know, I loved it there, but it was, yeah, it was, uh, I needed a little change of scenery. I hear you. Maryland will do that to you. Um, did you have a favorite bar? Yeah, you know, um, before, when I left, I was not even old enough to drink. And so um, the bar that I probably remember going to the most is probably the cellar. Okay. Which was maybe, you know, maybe the VU. It was the VU and then the cellar. I think it was, it, it went through a change of new management, but I don't know what it was when you were there. How, uh, but it, it was, was the VU. It was the VU. So the VU was, was pretty wild. I think the cellar was what it is probably when I first got there and they had changed management, as I remember. Yeah. But yeah it was, it was, yes. That's, that was someplace. <laughs> um, oh, it was someplace. All right. Yeah. It was something. I have story after story about that place. So my wife is from New Jersey, she's from East okay. Brunswick. Mm-hmm. And I always asked her half the people when, that I, when I was there at University of Maryland were from New Jersey. Yeah, a lot. Tons Can of you explain yep. that to me? You know, it was one of those places that was far enough to go 
where you could get home on a weekend if you wanted to. And I think it was also too far for your parents to like hop in the car and like be like, we're coming to see you. You know, it was like that type of thing. Um, you know, so there were a lot of kids who went to yeah, Maryland and Delaware. Um, and probably, you know, it was probably a little easier to get into than a place like New UMass, probably, I'm going to guess. And then there was like the DC attraction. Um, you know, Rutgers was, was and is a very good public university. But for a lot of kids from New Jersey, I think it was just sort of like, that's just like, you know, oh, you know, I'm going to go to school. You know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't like going to, for whatever reason, it's not like going to Ohio State or Michigan or, you know, it was just not that sort of like aura for like, oh, like here I live in Oklahoma now. And it's like, oh, you owe issue for a lot of kids is the, is the, um, the path they're going to be on, depending on, um, you know, their family or whatever. That's sure. for a lot of kids. That's like, a, you know, that's kind of a baked in thing. It's not the same thing with, um, with Rutgers. That's not to say it doesn't go, you know, obviously like probably 60% of the students there, 70 are in state students, but it just, there were, you know, there was a lot of uh, kids who, um, yeah, there, you, you know, they went there. And at the time when I got in, you know, it was still not super, super hard to get into. They sort of like began to like make it, you know, um, that's the whole was the whole actually lend post lend bias on bias died. And then there was an effort to try to remake the image of the university and bias died a couple of years before I got there. Um, so you got but, there um, in 88, you said? Yeah, I got there in 88. So, okay. you know, I got uh, there in 90. I was two years. I think we might have crossed paths. We probably did. My brother was there. My brother oh, cool. was there from uh, in the in the early nineties, and so yeah, it was a uh, <laughs> it was a yeah. Um, they were they were making it more competitive to get in, and like I remember someone joking with me, like by the time you know twenty years from now, it's going to be like hard degrees to be like Harvard or something like. That. I'm like, yeah, yeah like, make it more competitive, make it so competitive that like my degree twenty years from now, you know, might didn't get a degree, but your degree will be like. Oh my! It's like practically an Ivy League. It's so hard to get in there. You know, There's so. not a chance I'd be able to get in right now. <laughs> <laughs> not a chance. Where, so where did you live in Maryland when you first? What, what, what dorm did you live in and everything? So, so that's the thing, and it's not a fun story. So, literally, the, the summer between my um, what do you call that? Senior year of high school to yeah. freshman year of college, my parents decided they were no longer wanting to be married. So, all the money that was tied up to send me to school ended up getting tied up to all that stuff. So it all turned out well, but um, I put myself through school, but I, the entire time I was at Maryland, my wife and I were just talking about this because we went to a football game two weeks ago. And um, I spent a lot of time on campus. Mm -hmm. I stayed there quite often, but I, I was a commuter for the wow. entire time. All five years of Maryland. Wow. Well, uh, the fact that you commuted there, I mean, yeah, you probably... <laughs> missed out on some social stuff but it's also like it was you know it was a great a great place to go to school right it was, oh, it was like, awesome it was awesome yeah. yeah i'd go out my again my favorite my favorite was um bar with santa fe i don't know just more of a casual the vu got crazy as you know um oftentimes so bentley, and there was uh rj was, bentley's was, yep bentley's they really cleaned it up though i mean we we drove we showed the kids everywhere mommy and daddy hung out and i was like i don't know Oh my gosh! It doesn't look laughing. anything like it. Like the Vu's the cornerstone now, and uh, yeah, like the, the Vu's like the country club, right? You have to like you know like wear like wear proper attire and everything, right? Yeah. Oh God. Yeah, I uh, I I haven't been back much. I've you know, but I uh, I uh, when I do, I don't usually drive, <laughs> I don't usually drive that that part of the street. You know, no, no, it's just like I'm like yeah, it's just like. 
Uh, yeah, there's where I wasted my tuition dollars, and there's where oh, I wasted more tuition dollars, that type of thing. So, you know, yeah, it's so all good. But you studied criminal justice there. Well, yeah, I, I actually started as a criminal justice major, and okay. then I switched to history um, about halfway through. Um, okay. Yeah, I, you know, at some point, I, I just, uh, I, enjoy, I actually enjoyed the major, um, the criminal justice major, but I sort of realized that that I wasn't probably cut out to be a law enforcement officer. I mean, that was kind of like, you was know, that like, the intent? But, yeah. I mean, so on some level, I mean, I don't think I was like super set on that, but I was like, Oh, you know, I'm interested in, you know, uh, my father was actually a sociologist. And so, um, he taught courses on immigration and about criminology. Like he taught like, you know, like crim crim one one and stuff yeah. like that at a uh, community college. And so I was kind of interested in that, but yeah, I sort of realized that was not my, like, I wasn't going to be like, going to the police academy or something like that. And so I switched to be a history major. And so that, yeah, when I was there, what was it about history that intrigued you? You know, I grew up, um, with, uh, a dad and then a stepfather who were both big history buffs. And so there was a lot of that stuff around the house. Uh, you know, what I used to do for fun with my dad growing up, there were like, there was like baseball games. He took us to, he was not a football guy. Uh, he just really took us to like Mets or, Mets or Yankee games. And then, you know, he would go like take us to the library, and you know that was sort of like you know he was like I'm gonna we're going to the library, and so it's like okay, and then you you know you just sort of I already had really even as a young kid been really a an avid reader and kind of got into that he you know almost like by osmosis it was sort of like mm -hmm. you know showing me what he would do he would do research and stuff like that so um, I was interested in you know I didn't I didn't think I was going to be a historian I don't think like my junior sophomore junior year at University of Maryland it was just sort of like oh I'll just you know, just to get through college and then I, who knows what I thought I was going to law school. Yeah. That's what I thought, but, um, it was just probably seemed like a familiar, like, Oh, well, I, I couldn't possibly be an accountant, uh, or, you know, be an accounting major. I'm terrible at math. And, uh, you know, I don't really want geologies for me. So I'll be a history major, that type of thing. Okay. So you, am I correct in saying you got your MA at your master's at, um, university of Mississippi? That is correct. Right. So okay. after I finished at Rutgers, I uh, did my two years there in 93. And then I, I, uh, I was looking to, uh, yeah, to do a, a graduate degree. And I ended up doing the uh, master's at the University of Mississippi. I was really at that point, I had a really good, uh, a couple of really good professors at Rutgers. And one of them got me interested, of all things, in the history of the U.S. South. And, uh, so I was really intrigued by living in the South. I'd never, I'd lived in Maryland, you know, and that sort of, a you know, it's a border state and there's some people there who will like to sort of like put on airs of being Southern, but really they're like, you know, it's like, well, you're not really, so I mean, whatever you're just, yeah. um, yeah, but, uh, and so I got a chance to, yeah, to, uh, to go to university of Mississippi and I uh, saw Oxford and I thought it was such a cool town. And, uh, yeah, I, I was there for the two years and uh, did my, uh, my, uh, coursework. And then I did a, a, a master's thesis and then, yeah, so I was there. It was great. I mean, I loved, I loved living there and I got to see places like Memphis and Nashville and, uh, Jackson, Mississippi and all these places that, uh, I never, you know, as a kid from New Jersey, I never would have even gotten close to being able to see. So that was a really, a really great, um, a great experience. And, uh, yeah, I loved it. I, uh, another place I haven't been back very much just because of, you know, so the, the realities of geography, I haven't been back, but, uh, I would always recommend anybody who's looking for like a good weekend to do anything. He's, you know, whether you go on football season or not, it's probably better in some ways not to go during football season because you can explore the town. 
um, you know, it's just a great, a great small Southern town and has the universities there and great food and bookstores. And it's just a great, a great place. So I loved it there. Yeah. So the decision to get your master's, was that also a decision that you wanted to make history a career? Yeah. At that point I was, I was definitely thinking that was going to be the thing. And so, you know, by doing that, it was sort of like a, a halfway step towards, towards doing a, well, at least I thought like halfway step towards doing a PhD. I was like, I'll get a master's and I'll go and get a PhD probably, you know, and it's, it also was a way to sort of like, you know, I guess kind of hedge your bets. Like you could like, in, you know, it probably wouldn't have been economically the most sensible thing in the world, but you could like take your master's degree and then go teach you know, high school or something like that. You know, it isn't like, oh, you have a master's degree, so you'll get paid a little bit more sure. um, by a, by a school district or something like that. So that was the the one way of thinking about what I did with that. Yeah, I did that, okay. and then, um, yeah, and then I, I started applying to graduate programs, and uh, I uh, then uh, yeah headed off to uh, to Brandeis. And so that was the next the next thing, and so uh, I uh, had some good choices for PhD programs, but that was a really uh, uh, I thought a good a good fit for me. It was relatively small. Um, it, it guaranteed funding. If you got into, they only admitted five students every year into the program. And then what was nice about wow. it too was that they guaranteed funding. So uh, some other graduate programs in all sorts of disciplines. Basically, they admit students, and then there's sort of like a Darwinian struggle for resources. Like the best students get full funding, and then the ones that are not as good don't get all the funding. And so. You know, with history, especially, you don't want to be. I had some debt, uh, obviously, had some debt from University of Maryland for my adventures there already. And I did, you know, you don't want to be saddled with like massive student loans. And so basically, it's like there it was, it's a, it was a, a nice pack package, basically, um, admissions package. And it was a great school and it was a chance to live in Boston. And so that was for Waltham, which is a suburb of Boston. And so that was a, a really cool moment. And yeah, that was uh, not a very, not a super hard decision once it was like all locked in with funding and everything. I was, I was going to go there. Yeah. But then you became a professor of history. I did. I did. I, uh, yeah. Very rather young, right? Well, I don't, you know, I was, I was probably not the youngest person in my class. I mean, I, um, you know, because of some of my, uh, academic, uh, uh, wanderings, um, I was probably not as, as young as some of my classmates, but yeah, I mean, I was, you know, I was out and um, I can't have to think about how old I was, but it was like, I was like, you know, um, 30 or something like that when I got my first job, which is not, you know, not crazy old, but not crazy young for uh, yeah. a first job for a professor. So I did that. And then, um, yeah, I ended up uh, going on the job market and uh, I got a job at Drury University in Springfield, Missouri. And uh, I'd never, I'd never heard of Drury. I'd never really been to Missouri. And I don't even think I'd ever been, even been to St. Louis. and. Uh, you know those those uh those jobs though those tenure track jobs are um are definitely precious commodities i mean some people who are like you know maybe a superstar out of grad school might have multiple offers and you know but it's still it's there there are plenty of people who don't get jobs like you go and you do the whole job cycle and you like oh you know get a job it's not like if you can code today like you're like you're like everyone wants to hire me to code it's like yeah. you know, or like you know it was um they were um was definitely a feeling of accomplishment if you got offered especially a tenure rather than a one year where it's like oh you can you know we'll pay you one year and then we'll see what happens it's a, it was it was in theory a, a, a track towards becoming a, a full professor or associate professor or whatever so that's yeah that was a um that was a uh, a thing that yeah I, again i give it some thought but it was like yeah it was like you're going to take the take the job and that was my yeah my first job so i moved from boston to uh to uh Mass- uh from massachusetts to missouri 
What did you enjoy most about being a professor? Oh, wow. You know, I was a professor for a long time. I mean, relatively speaking, I was like 10, 10 years, uh, 12 years. You know, um, I really enjoyed getting the opportunity to convince students that history had value. So one of the things that, you know, I actually, I think probably unlike most history professors, I actually enjoy teaching the surveys, which is like, you know, history 101, history 102. I actually enjoyed those um, even more than teaching upper level courses. I, I think because what for me came from a lot of satisfaction when I would have students writing the evaluations, like I hated history, but you made me, you know, made me enjoy it. Or I, 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 I don't even really like history, but I like this class. I learned, I learned some things. And that was for me the, you know, it was sort of, it was just to get the average kid who, you know, who's not going to become obsessed with history and it's not going to walk around like, you know, you know, blogging about like, you know, America's moment in history or, you know, just to sort of have some awareness about uh, pa patterns and um, different landmark events and kind of, you know, kind of walk away with some basic, for lack of a better term, a basic familiarity with the big moments in American history and have some sense of like, oh, you know, you know, oh, we're going through a housing bubble. When I was teaching through the big housing crash, it's like, had a stock market crash. We've had, you know, these, these are, there are things that have happened in the past before looking at other housing bubbles. We looked at, you know, there's one that happened in Florida, um, in Miami, in the 1920s was the same type of thing. Like the, the market got totally over, over speculated. And then it just absolutely got crushed right before, actually right before the, the great depression in the late 1920s. And so kind of look at that with your students and they're like, Oh, was there like, you know, it's like, you know, it was like people were flipping houses in Florida. I'm like, yeah, kind of, they were, I mean, they're building, but it was like the same idea, like, Oh, invest in this, Swampland, and then get some sucker to buy the house on it, and then you know it's just you you can make money, and so kind of seeing that it's like oh it's not as if this is like never happened before, right? They're men not exactly the same, but it's a uh, it's a an ability to use history as a a lens to look in the past and see like oh these are these are um, patterns that take place in our society uh, takes place around the world. I'm sure in different mm -hmm. in different societies, these types of things, but that'd be one example of that type of thing. And that was, you know, that was very satisfying to be that students be like, Oh, you know, they're like, Oh yeah, we watched, I, you know, I'm like you watch flip this house. You're like, whatever those shows were like, yeah, I'm like you get it. You slap down the, the new carpeting, you like paint the house and you bought it for $50,000. Now it's $150,000. Is the house worth that much more? It's like, no, you know, it's a house. Like, did you, did you, you know, kind of understanding what the nature of a market and sort of how people get in a psychology of, um, over speculation and stuff. And so, you know, that, that was also applicable to, you know, stock market, um, bubbles and, or, or stock market run-ups and tech bubble and these types of things. So getting the students to think about that type of stuff. And, um, it was, uh, very, that was, you know, kind of satisfying to me to, to sure. get them out of their sort of like history sucks. This is annoying. You're going to make me memorize all this stuff and I don't really want to know, you know? So here's my question on history. Um, and I'm coming to the source. I have a friend of mine that always says the winners write the history books. So w let's just say current times right now, we're so divided on what reality is. Mm -hmm. So how as a professor or a, 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 um, a fan of history, how do you know, looking back, if the history has been diluted with opinion or like what's actual factual did this actually happen and it's not kind of marred with just ideas ideologies well i'd say that 
if you study scholarship in history, meaning, uh, I'll give you an example. So there are going to be a ton of books written about the Spanish American war. Okay. Uh, I mean, any major event in in American history, there's going to be a ton of books. The civil war might be the most notable. There's like the literally like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, like hundred, probably hundred thousand books written on the civil war in the last since the civil war like it's just crazy right because it's been such so carefully studied and i um, think my mom has half of them in right 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 so i'm slightly exaggerating but there's there's it's a it's a and a number of books that you probably couldn't any one person probably couldn't have read everything so what i would say is that you're going to have in the historical profession schools of interpretation um maybe use let's use the civil war as an example of that where you will have after the American Civil War, the interestingly enough, the dominant narrative that was taught in public schools all across the country, including the North, would have been something to the effect that the Civil War was a terrible mistake, that it was terrible that Americans fought Americans. And oftentimes in those narratives, what you would read is that the, the big one of the big flaws was there was an effort to try to give the vote to people. Again, speaking about the scholarship of 150 years ago, 100 years ago, they should have, they shouldn't have had the vote. In other words, that the idea that slaves would have been emancipated—that's one thing—but to, to elevate them to full citizenship, that was a terrible mistake. Uh, hmm. And this would have been written at the time during Jim Crow, where African Americans were denied the vote; they were denied basic civil civil rights, um, and were treated as second class citizens. Right, can't register to vote. Um, you are not able to serve on a jury. I mean, all these things I could kind of go through. And so, you know, it's interesting you talk about the winners writing history. And in that in that sense, really, the, the narrative sort of became about assuaging the losers. It was sort of like to bring the country back together, sort of like sort of um, elevating in some ways the Southern interpretation became one of the more dominant, like really the dominant narrative. Now that shifted by the 1960s in the U.S. There was a reinterpretation of that and sort of realizing that like, what happened after the Civil War to Black people with the Reconstruction was horrible. That basically had their rights; they were like they were made equal citizens of the United States after the Civil War, and then their rights were stripped away through Jim Crow, and that's why we had to have a civil rights movement. Um, and so, what I would say about that is that it's important, even if there's like a dominant narrative where it's like, oh, X event that just happened, you know, X event happened ten years ago, um, and you read, you know, there's an interpretation that's there. I'm not saying it's necessarily. Uh, not factual there may be books that are that completely distort the reality or you know in theory they shouldn't be distorting like the basic facts of when things happen but interpretations and we're all human beings there's not like a an objective interpretation right i mean maybe if we have a computer that writes writes history that would be like okay we're gonna strip at all sort of you know opinion i mean everybody's got got some level of opinion and while i would say most historians not all most sort of will uh, attempt to la- have some general sense of objectivity to sort of be like okay look i gotta be gotta be fair if there's if there's evidence that undermines my argument i can't just sort of go i'm gonna bury that and, you know i don't want you know that's like shit history excuse my language that's like oh you know that's where it's like where people write these books that i don't even call them necessarily history but like basically serious academic historians you you at least you have to sort of grapple with the evidence that might undermine your thesis, right? You can't just go to go, this doesn't matter. But that's what people do when they have really overly political 
books that are sort of uh, that I wouldn't even say are really history, right? They're sort of like, oh, next thing happened and I'm going to write this book. But all I want to do is sort of drive my narrative and like, that's what you're talking about. So there's, there's plenty of those books. I mean, I won't mention any names or even, you know, it doesn't even matter. There's like plenty of people who are like, in case you had noticed, who are like media figures who write books about history. Do they, are they historians? No. Um, Can people read the books and enjoy them? I mean, I guess, sure. If you want to read about like the, you know, a bombing raid over Tokyo in 1945 written by X person who's on some news network, that's fine. Um, It might be a perfectly fine book, but it's not, you know, it's not, you know, in the same sort of way, I'm not trying to over, uh, over make this analogy because obviously like, you know, we all know that like when I make a mistake in the history class, if I taught a history class, you know, I would just come in and correct it the next day and everyone would be fine. I'm sorry. I said 1862. I meant 1864. When a doctor makes a mistake, you know, you, you die on the table, right? So it's not exactly the same thing, but like basically, you know, um, you have people who aren't trained academic historians. It's not to say they can't write books and they can't, some of them are, can be really good, but it's like, you sort of have to like understand that they're not, you know, they're just sort of like, I just need to like write my book and like, lay lay these things out to sort of make my book work right instead of like going oh well maybe bombing maybe firebombing japan was actually a a morally questionable thing i'm just you know using that as an example they may be like no it doesn't matter we won the war we bombed japan like you know what i'm saying like so like a a serious academic historian would would be expected to sort of wrestle with the moral quandary of that type of thing rather than just sort of going i'm just gonna you know drive my narrative home and again whatever or or flip like bombing japan was the worst thing america ever did a serious academic story would, would in theory sort of like okay well wait a minute now what's the other side of that and have to make sense of that are you at all concerned with just how divided we are as a society now that the history books that will be written about the last two three years are just going to be all over the place well i mean i am concerned about how divided we are i'm not you know i'm not i'm not i'm not the, I'm not the guy to like <laughs> I write books about Van Halen now, so it's not like I could be the guy to be like, "Wow, you know." I'm well, very just as someone yeah. that like loves history, right? No, right. I mean, right. Of course, you, you get understand my point. Um, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, I try to keep it in perspective. Is that we um, have had periods of of pretty extreme polarization in the past, and I'm not like saying to say this is good. Like, you know, I, I would prefer if we didn't weren't extremely polarized. Um, yeah. You know, we've we fought a, a civil war as we've already touched on. Um, you know, people killed themselves and killed each other in Kansas, like slaughtered each other in Kansas before the Civil War happened. Uh, there were periods of extreme, extreme violence that happened after the Civil War, especially in the South. I mean, like terroristic violence. And so um, that's not to minimize what's happened in the last few years to say that it doesn't matter or it's not that big of a deal. Um, you know, but my my hope is that, you know, America could find its way forward in terms of politics. Um, I, I my basic very very quick and dirty take on it is that um you know social media has made it much easier to to polarize people um you know there was a you know, look 100 years ago there was like republican and democratic newspapers you know people talk about like everyone's in there reading their own silo it's like you know you would pick up the the, the kentucky republican or the kentucky democrat right you follow me it's like yep. there were newspapers that were like politically complete they were basically and again the news stories, everything would have been sort of slanted to sort of like appease the Republican or a Democratic voter. So it's not like a new thing, but I think the speed of it and sort of the fact that, you know, you don't even have to really just even reflect on anything. At least when you read, you had to like a little, like the little reflections more like, I hate this person, you know, and, you know, retweet, you know, and so that's, that's, um, that is, uh, worrisome. 
Um, but you know, I mean, look, the last few years have not been, um, I would say politically, uh, ideal and for a lot of reasons, but, um, you know, despite the violence that took there was violence. Obviously, there was violence that's gone over the last few years. I mean, l- luckily, two sides didn't organize like armies and start killing each other, like you know, yeah. like marching on Washington or like marching on, I don't know, marching on whatever. I, you know, I'll just leave it there. You know, so, yeah. so um, uh, yes. Well, let's well, talk you really about- got me. You're like a lot of soapbox stuff. I mean, no one would, no one would put up with this for me. This is incredible. Like my own <laughs> wife, my own wife would be like. Well, it's so interesting to me because I I I loved history. My my daughter asked me today what was my favorite uh, uh, subject in school. She's in seventh grade now. And I'm like history. I loved history, but then as I've gotten older, and I you know you go out and you have conversations in the wild with other human right. beings, and they see one instant or one situation completely different than you. Right. So if I was writing a history book or the right. history. And I've been thinking about that a lot lately of, well, how's this going to shake out? Because they're saying something absolutely 180 degrees different than how I see it happening. Well, right. I mean, I think, you know, far be, I mean, without getting too into the weeds with this, it's just there, you know, it's the, the past has shown us that that schools of interpretation will form in academia. I go again, I'm, again, I'm not necessarily, I'm not necessarily talking about like the books, that might be the history bestsellers. I'm talking about when historians, and some of them might be, but some, you know, but for the most part, like um, there will be schools of interpretation that will, you know, that some would say like the, the polarization of the last four years was largely driven by the personality of one person. And then there are other people might say the first, the, the conflicts of the last four years were largely driven by economic forces. You know what I'm saying? Like there's like, there's difference. It's just like, I'm making that up, but the different interpretations, schools that will pop up and then, then there will be um, conversations through articles, and that sort of will wrestle with these different factors. I mean, that's what's going to—that's what's going to happen. There will be, um, you know, it's a little soon to have that sort of like sure. assessment of like the last election or the one before that, or even the one before, even the one before that. Really, you know, usually you figure like at least twenty years out before you can really have sort of like, you know, um, a, a real ability to have some sort of perspective on an event without sort of being like, yeah writing journalism in some ways. Well, my, my question is obviously um, seen or asked through the prism of today. Cause that's where we are. But I'm, I know that what we're dealing with today, we've been dealing with, you know, since man existed. So I guess the, I guess my overall question, and you've answered it is eventually, no matter what period of time that we're in, that history was written, eventually things get cross-referenced enough where something close to the truth is what's generally accepted. Is that, is that? Well, yeah. I mean, I think, I think, I think it depends how I think the events of the last few years are going to be studied extremely closely by historians. You know, um, there are certainly events that happen in American history that are probably under have some that have been understudied. Um, you know, and I think, you know, from, from my perspective and sort of like, you know, you know, let's use like the battle of Gettysburg. I mean, there's probably, you know, again, like 500 books, at least that have been written in the last 30 years about the battle, battles of Gettysburg. I mean, if you're looking at the facts of the battle of Gettysburg, you can, you can, you know, generally, we're never going to actually have been there. Right. But I generally sort of like understand what happened, like sort of hour to hour, day to day in the battle of Gettysburg, the significance. Right. Um, what mistakes were made, 
what the long-term effects of the Battle of Gettysburg were, uh, not just again about the end of the Civil War, but like through American history, that's where yeah. people are going to disagree. Um, you know, so I think I'm, I'm less concerned about it being like, oh, we're not going to learn the truth uh, about the basic facts. I'm, it's, it's, you know, it's more about what schools of interpretation will come to dominate. Not, and that's not to say that, you know, if, if it's one I don't agree with that it's like fatal to the nation it, because it's like, as I've said to you, I mean, it's like things came full circle with the civil war for a long time. It was like, you know, it was instead of saying like, you know, maybe it was, you know, maybe it was worth it to fight a war agreed. 600,000 Americans died, agreed tore the country apart to destroy slavery. Right. Yeah. That was not a accepted at all mainstream interpretation for a long time. It was more like, Oh, you mean you know Americans went to went to war to end slavery, and all these Americans that white 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 Americans died? Oh, it's just terrible. You know, it's like instead of going like, uh, you know, human beings owning owning other human beings is the most horrific thing that probably has ever taken place in in human history. Um, in terms of social relations, it's like, of uh, yeah, I mean, if you're going to go to war over something, that's probably that's more. That's probably more of a good reason to go to war. Than some of the other wars we've had in the past. Yeah, yeah. Right. So that's, you know, so, you know, that's what I'm saying about these things can, these interpretations, even if they seem like they're like kind of monolithic, it's like, this is the interpretation. You know, it's people, people change, society changes. Yeah. You know, people's viewpoints change and they sort of looking at Ben Stiff like through a different lens, they're like new generations of people rise up. And uh, another example would this be, you know, the, the, um, the study of immigration, um, the historical study of immigration. I mean, a lot of the people who did a lot of the, the work on that historians were, were the children or the grandchildren of immigrants. In other words, it's like suddenly instead of having like most of the academic historians are going to be basically for lack of a better term, like native white wasp type people who were like, who families had been here for a long time were established. Right. You have like by the 1940s and 1950s and 1960s, you have people who are second, third generation Italian American or German American or Russian American, they're like they're actually studying this in a different sort of way. They're actually like, oh, I really want to look what happened in the brownstones in New York. I want to want to look what happened, um, you know, when when Japanese Americans migrated to to California. Like, there's mm-hmm. there was a different way of studying it because their experience, they had a different social experience themselves. If that makes sense, yeah. that makes that makes a big difference. Um, rather than going like, oh, well, you know, I don't really know anyone who's an immigrant. You know, I, I'm I'm fifth generation American, and this is interesting because I'm studying the numbers, but I don't really, really, you know, I just think these people are different than us. They speak a funny language, and hopefully, they, you know, whatever, you know, yeah. else you would say. All right, so let's transition. Um, you're a professor at school. When did you get the bug to write a Van Halen book? Like, where'd that come from? So, um, so I earned tenure in, uh, you know, so this all this time I'm. You know, from when I was 14, I was a Van Halen fan, and um, that never really waned. I was always, you know, uh, interested in going to see shows when I could, no such thing. And so, um, yeah, so fast forward, it's 20, it's 2010 or so, and I've earned tenure. And it's, uh, you know, it's kind of a grind to do that. There's a lot of just, um, I had written one academic book already, gotten a pub- published by University of Georgia Press. That came out and sort of, I was just, you know, you're sort of like, okay, there was a summer after tenure and you're sort of like, okay, I've just like worked my ass off for six years to get this thing done. And, you know, I've gotten this, this, okay, that I've, um, made the cut basically for lack of a better term. And so 
I, I had this idea to sort of like write something small for like Van Halen news desk. It was like completely like, um, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't want to do any, <laughs> I don't, I, I just burned out on my like typical areas of study, which had nothing to do with rock and roll. Yeah. Um, I, and I thought, oh, I'll just do this little thing for Van Halen news desk or something just for fun. Sure. And, uh, I started, um, poking around on Facebook and pulling out a few, um, old issues of some magazines I had that I kind of carried with me from like the eighties and stuff. And I was reading about Van Halen's beginnings and I thought, Oh, that'd be kind of interesting. You know, no one really had written about this. I thought I'd maybe I'd write a little something about like, I don't know, like, you know, uh, Van Halen and Pasadena or something like that. Like a little, like, uh, again, it was meant to be for like fun, like not even for like make money or anything. It was meant to be like, Oh, I'll do this. And, um, that kind of just started the snowball. I mean, uh, I started to talk. I talked to a couple of, I, one of the first people, people I talked to actually was a, was a guy who had owned a club, uh, in Van Nuys, California called the rock corporation. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I found this Facebook group kind of like looking at Pasadena and someone had mentioned this, this club called the rock corporation. I was like, Oh, I remember this from some David Lee Roth interview. And I looked and I found the Facebook group and ended up talking to the guy who owned the club. And that was the, uh, the club where, um, <laughs> Van Halen host basically hosted West teacher contest. And I thought, Oh, this is kind of interesting. So I started looking at this and talking to this guy. And this guy had just had like some crazy stories. Not even about the West teacher contest, which is about basically about like, you know, running a bar where like the clientele is mostly bikers. Like that was like, Oh my, you know, like, oh my God, like, this is like crazy. This is wild. Um, and so, uh, it just would continue where I would talk to someone like that. And then he would say, Oh, you should talk to this guy or talk to this guy. And I just, you know, I started to put more and more stuff together. And then it was just sort of like, okay, I got to go back to doing my thing. I'm still like writing articles for historical journals and stuff like that and doing my typical research but I was sort of like, like kind of like just plugging away at this. And this would have been like 2011, you know, people always ask me how long it took me to write the book. The book came out in 2015. I'm always like, oh, I started around 2012. Cause that's really like true that I really started like 2012, 2013 to really try to work on the book. But really? It was yeah. like, you know, it was like, I had already like started to like, um, interview some people. I didn't have an idea. I was going to write a book yet. I was when, just when like, did that, that happen? Uh, I mean, that's an interesting question. I don't know. I mean, it was like, I mean, I, I first I thought I was like, it's like, this is kind of a crazy idea. It, sounds like a, it doesn't sound like a good idea uh at first just because it was like it was not i mean i'm not saying it couldn't have been an academic book but you can't like i mean it's kind of a i would say it was kind of a, it would be kind of a gray area to submit like van halen rising as part of your academic portfolio i mean yes i probably could have yes but it definitely is not like a um you know in terms of like the university evaluating scholarship it probably, it probably would have been like it would have been a risk for me to be like, Oh, this sure. is so, so it was sort of like, I sort of like slow walked my way into it, but eventually it was just became kind of an obsession for me. I was still doing my other stuff, but this was like, you know, like, Oh, it's almost like someone like, who's like a, you know, a math professor who's writing a novel on the side or something like that. It's just sort of like, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm teaching my math classes, but this is, you know, I'm doing this at night. Um, and that was sort of, you know, what it, it, um, started as, but it, it was quickly apparent to me that there was this, just a quickly, it became apparent to me fairly early on, way before I was like committed to writing a book. I'm like, this is a really interesting story, actually, about the the, the family history of the Van Halens, and then I met this quirky guy, David Lee Roth, who had a lot more money than their family, and they formed this band, and they can't get a record deal, like all the stuff we, you know, it's kind of uh, Van Halen lore, uh, which 
when I started to research it, I mean, a lot of it was like actually kind of pretty factual, like in terms of like the general outlines of the story. I mean, so obviously there's stuff that's exaggerated you learn and, and things like that, but a lot of it wasn't that exaggerated. Um, and so, yeah. Well, what was the biggest, what was the biggest surprise that actually wasn't real? Like, 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 you know, a story that oh. we've heard for years and years and years oh. about anything involving Van Halen that you're like, oh, that didn't actually even happen. Yeah, I mean, there's, it's, it's. Uh, I mean, there wasn't anything that was like crazy. I mean, I, I would hear, I mean, I would hear things like, oh, Eddie and the rest of the guys in Van Halen all lived in this house in Pasadena, and that was just sort of like mythical, like that never happened. But there was nothing like. I mean, beyond sort of like me sort of nailing down like timeline stuff and sort of um, getting, you know, the general outlines of their their career in order, there really wasn't anything that that I can remember that was like crazy, crazy untrue, you know, that I was yeah. like, oh, that's, you know, beyond sort of like um, there was stuff that was probably, um, you know, somewhat embellished probably to some extent um you know maybe like you know like the when the brothers came to america that's that had already come up kind of come out but there was stuff in their bio that was a little bit embellished but there was nothing like i mean i, I say that and i'm i keep trying to think i mean there was really nothing that i would say like oh i learned that you know that wasn't um you know true at all i mean the one thing i mean obviously that if you read david lee ross interviews he sort of plays up the fact that he like you know, like, you know, I live my life, you know, all I had, and God, I had to steal. He sort of like kind of plays off this like struggling artist thing. And, uh, you know, from what I was able to basically put together, it's like Ross father never like showered money on him. You know, those guys actually had to like buy their own gear and stuff like that. But you're living in a 20 room mansion. I mean, so it's not like you're like wondering like, when's the next time I'm going to eat? Like, you know, <laughs> obviously that wasn't part of the Ross, you know, that's sort of like Ross right. mythology, which is, you know, probably over time he sort of like, you know, sort of like i'm a star was a starving artist and, yeah. you know in some ways you know that that was truthful to some degree was that that he had he was all in on this thing and you know if it didn't work there wasn't like a big backup plan it wasn't like well i'm you know i'm ready to become a doctor or i can become a lawyer there was you know so that's that's fine but that that might be the most interesting thing that sort of like you're like oh yeah i mean i mean everyone kind of knew that roth was was wealthy son of a doctor but you sort of like really took to think about it like you're like okay yeah so, so it was a little bit of yeah. like um, poetic license. I'll say that. Um, when you, when you published the book mm -hmm. and it came out, what mm -hmm. were you, um, were you excited about the response? Well, you know, honestly, so about two years before I started trying to like basically pave the way for it to come out. I mean, I had no, I wasn't a rock journalist. I had no, no, cred in terms of like a, i mean i'd never written a book like this before yeah. nobody <laughs> on paper it was like history professor writes a book about van allen it's sort of like okay this is gonna suck right i mean basically it's like this is gonna be boring so um you know about two years before i really tried to you know i started like a tumblr and i started doing a couple things like an email list sort of like kind of like pave the way for this book to come out um and the book when it did come out yeah there was a pretty enthusiastic response to it you know i did this book signing in pasadena and mm -hmm. said templeman attended and then we did a launch party and that was really a fun a fun thing i mean actually what ended up happening with that it was like a lot of the people i i interviewed 
or people who were friends of the people I interviewed, there were a lot of bands that came out of Pasadena that never got huge. I mean, it was just a matter of, there was like a very uh, much a thriving, I mean, think about bands like, um, you know, Armored Saint, Boingo Boingo, like the guys from Dread Zeppelin. There were a number of bands that sort of like, you know, kind of came out of um, the San Gabriel Valley or Pasadena one way or the other, Walla Voodoo. I think some of those guys came out of that. But, um, you know, and there were also a lot of like hard rock, bands that followed in van halen's footsteps and most of them obviously never never made it like van halen did and so what was kind of fun was like um you know when i thought oh we should have a party like a little like party i thought like well how like you know she's in crackers and like you know whatever like you know people drink like wine out of paper cups or something like that and they're like let's get a, you know a couple of people who are interviewed for the book were like we should, you know we should get, get this nightclub there's this nightclub in pasadena and uh, supposedly Van Halen played there. I, I, I think that was it's likely true. They played there a couple of times, early, like early, early on, like yeah. '73 or something like that. Um, small, like a dive bar, and uh, and so they sort of like talked me into it, like in some ways. And I was like, okay, you know, it'll be it'll be it, it, um, a good thing to publicize the book, but also it should be fun. It was actually a very you know the, the build up to it uh, was pretty stressful. I got to tell you, it was like a lot of like. You're dealing with a lot of musicians and a lot of people who have different, I'll just say different opinions about things. I'm not a musician. I've never, you know, it's like, it was, it was, um, it went, it went great. <laughs> there are times things to be four days before and I was like, it's not going to go great. Um, you know, but so that, that from that standpoint, I mean, there was a lot of people who felt, which was really cool, felt as if they, they believed that I was going to do justice to the story and that I was going to kind of capture yeah, not just about a band, but a whole, like, yeah. again, these are people from Pasadena and Arcadia, uh, Altadena that I was going to capture Glendale capture a moment in time, so to speak, you know, that it was like a, the day remember when this was, you know, backyard parties were a thing when people go to Hollywood oh, and go yeah. to clubs and stuff like that. And so that was cool. I mean, a lot of people were very appreciative. Again, people who like, you know, like went to the high school with the Van Halens or like, people who threw parties or, you know, Mark Stone, who's unfortunately passed away, but he was, he went to the launch party and got to play with, with Van Halen, the, the tribute band who played. And that was, uh, that was amazing because, I, you know, he had really not played that much in the last few years that up to that point. And he'd always been the guy who, you know, for lack of a better turn, it's sort of like, you know, been the guy who was in Van Halen and then left too soon. Right. So uh, did he leave was, or did he was asked, was he asked to leave? Yeah, it was the it was the latter, right? They they okay. asked him to leave. Um, you know, he was um, Mark was a very good musician, and anyone who played with the Van Halen brothers for three plus, you know, whatever three four actually probably closer to almost four years. I you never yeah. quite you know exactly when Mark joined, but um, you know, you've got to be a good musician. You know, the Van Halen brothers obviously who were obsessed with getting things exactly right on the record were not going to like put up with anyone who couldn't do it. Um, but yeah, he sort of his, his time has sort of come to, uh, um, come to an end with them. And so, um, for him to play at that party was, was just a cool, you know, you could see it was like, for him, it was sort of like, I think it provided some sort of closure. Like it was sort of like, he could like just people come up to him asking for autographs. I mean, this is like a very unassuming, very quiet man. He was sure. not, like, not like, Oh, here I am. You know, it was not like that yeah. at all, not at all, you know, well, and you're like felt good. Yeah. In your research, and this is this is one thing I I can never pinpoint, or or it, there seems to be up for debate, maybe. But you're the guy. 
Um, was he a part of Van Halen or was he a member of Broken Combs and Mammoth? Right. So he was, so he would have been in Mark joined probably around 1971 and he would have joined Genesis. Gen- that's right. That's right. Genesis. So he was in a band called Genesis. And then around 1972 or so, Genesis changed its name to Mammoth, the famous story yeah. where the brothers see this record in the record store and it's called, yeah. you know, uh, nursery crimes by this band called Genesis. And it's like, Oh, I guess we need to change their names. So they changed their name to Mammoth. And then, um, so Mark is in Mammoth and then David Lee Roth joins. And so David Lee Roth was in Mammoth. When, da- when David Lee Roth paired up with the Van Halen brothers, he was in Mammoth. And then in the fall of 1973 was approximately when the Van Halen's found out there was another local band who was actually had a higher profile. I mean, they were still playing like maybe, I mean, like the occasional nightclub, but they were mostly playing like proms and like yep. backyard parties and like whatever other things like they would do. Um, that there was another band in Los Angeles called Mammoth that was actually a cover band, but they were, you know, they had a um, management and everything, I think. And they, they wrote a cease and desist letter and that's when the name got changed. That would have been in the fall of, 73 and that point mark was still in the band so and then mark remains in the band until about may of 74 and michael anthony joins and at that okay. point there you know there's still van halen so he was in genesis sure. mammoth and van halen okay well so i grew up a massive i i you and i are a couple years apart and i i and we'll talk about this um but i came on board i knew in 1984 i was 12 when i in 1984 um, I knew jump and, and those songs, but it wasn't until 5150 where it kind of like grabbed me. Um, right. So that being said, I lived in the bookstores and the record stores and there were, there really were never any books written about Van Halen. Right. Um, and yours came out and it was awesome because it was, it was someone paying attention to my favorite band that um, I didn't know you at the time. I didn't know your background as a historian, but um, I don't know. It kind of got a vibe that you were on the up about, you know, really being making this credible and, and, you know, truthful. Well, I mean, that was, I appreciated. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the things that I was most interested in doing was sort of, giving van halen their due i mean talk about bias right i was obviously super biased but like you know i'm a van halen fan right it's like you can't be like objective about a band that you like loved when you were 14 years old um sure. but you know i did think that there was uh there had been probably because the band had been so fractured over years with different singers and there had been so much bs that has gone around kind of the last the 20 years leading up to that i mean i know they had reunited with roth by the time i'd written the book and everything but I, I kind of had felt a lot of people had sort of like been like, yeah, whatever. Well, there's like all these other bands are like the Who and the Stones and the Beatles and all these bands. And you know, I'm not necessarily saying Bla- you know Van Halen should be placed alongside the Beatles, but I felt there was sort of like that Van Halen's stock had dropped because you know they hadn't done the like Def Leppard thing where there's like basically the same basic core yeah. singer and guys throughout the throughout the thing and I, I that they had sort of lost ground and so that was one of the things i wanted to try to um to do in terms of a purpose of the book was to basically say hey look this band was you know this was a band that shouldn't have made it in some ways and they did and they yeah. 
changed the course of rock history by um, basically writing and pushing um, by touring an album that nobody really gave a chance and it sold two million copies and they really sort of paved the way for the 80s. And so that was my my purpose in writing the book. And um, so, yeah, I mean, that was the that was the thing I meant it to mean. I, I wanted to do all those interviews. I did 230 interviews because I wanted people to recognize that uh, there was a big story to be told and that that I had done my what was, you know, reasonable in terms of trying to put the book together and sort of like to get the story from as many people as I could um, and to really get across how two kids who came from Holland paired up with this oddball guy from Pasadena to, uh, you know, to blow back Black Sabbath away most nights and to, you know, be a band that was going to become this basically the sound of the eighties for like hard rock. Yeah. Well, your take on that's interesting because the very things that you thought made them irrelevant, I thought would make great fodder for books. I mean, all that drama, Van Halen was full of drama. And that, I mean, you would think, and maybe that is the, the few things that did come out really kind of exploited the drama and, and most, maybe most of it wasn't even factual, but um, yeah, that was always disappointing to me that there wasn't much about that story um, given the, the, yeah, I mean, the amount of stuff that you could write about, but well, did, you, did you hear from the family throughout that process of, you know, nothing? Okay. I mean, I've always, I've told the story, uh, versions of the story numerous times, but, um, I, I've heard from a couple of people that, uh, at least one guy who had Mike Anthony sign my book, who I, I interviewed him for the book and he was like, Oh, good book. And he actually wrote this guy's book. He wrote, Hey, Chris, good book, you know, exclamation point, Mike Anthony. I've never, I've never had a conversation with Mike about it since I did the interview with him. Yeah. Um, he's made a couple of nice comments on different, like Eddie trunk or whatever, mm-hmm. like kind of mentioning the book. Um, Never, never spoke to Roth and never spoke to the Van Halens. Um, the story that I, I, I have to tell for my own, like give myself my own little pat on the back is that I have a friend who has a friend who, um, I, who has it. Yes. Who is friends with somebody who has had, had an opportunity to visit the Van Halen household, Eddie's house and actually in visiting the house, actually saw the book inside the house. And so from what I understand, Eddie, Eddie, someone gifted Eddie the book. Yeah, but, you know, it was on a shelf in the house, and I always thought that was like an amazing accomplishment that Eddie didn't like take the oh book my and throw it in the trash. He wasn't like, you know, that's just trash. You know, it basically it basically survived. Like, oh, he someone wrote a book about me, and I'll actually like gain to have it in my house. And so, yeah, I, I have no idea if he ever cracked the book, looked at it, looked at the pictures. I have no idea. I don't know. Um, you know, never heard a word about Alex or anything. And I, you know, it's fine. I mean, they they lived it. They don't have to like read books about themselves it's like well, you know so i don't listen protect- to my own interviews yeah it's like yeah. you don't want to listen to, like my own interviews it's like be weird like what did i say and i was like right it's fine well i was just curious because there's they've been so elusive and protective um about that brand and the band right that, right um, i didn't know if they had a, you know if you heard any feedback of well that's you know if they had differing differing views or memories of of well what- i'm and i'm sure i, I look i'm a hundred percent sure that if I sat down with Alex Van Halen today, he would be like, well, that's not right. Like what you said in the yeah. book, like maybe like that wasn't exactly, you know, I don't agree. Like, I don't agree with that or that wasn't right. Or I don't remember it that way. I'm sure, sure. there were things like you probably read as a fault, you know, but I, I would like to think like on the, you know, 
the, the majority of the vast majority of things. Like not that he has to agree with my interpretation of like who did what or like how important Dave was or whatever yeah. his brother that he might like be like, yeah, that happened. Like that did happen or something like that. But, um, I mean, <laughs> it's like, who knows? It's like, you know, in some ways it's like, you know, it's, uh, it's, I you mean, would be arguing nuances though. Like your book isn't salacious. It is, you know, it is telling an amazing story. So, you know, it's, it's nothing like the other things that I've seen where it just paints these sometimes horrific well, stories of what happened. Right. Yeah. And I didn't feel empowered. I mean, you know, even if I wanted to, and I never would really want to write a book like that, that wouldn't be my yeah. thing. I mean, I, same thing I did with the Templeman book. It's like, um, you know, that was him telling me things. And so that's a little bit different, but like, I just a sort of idea, like that you would like without someone's permission, sort of like be like, I want to tell all this nasty stuff about you. I don't know. It's like, you yeah. know, obviously you want to be truthful to the facts, but also it's like, I mean, of course you, you know, it's a rock and roll band. Of course you hear all sorts of stuff. Like when you sure. write a book like this, it's you're like, but you know, I was like, isn't there been enough? I mean, there are plenty of, you know, and that was sort of like when I wrote the book, Again, not that I even want, would want to write anything like that, but it was like that was like peak, like the dirt. Like everyone was trying to out dirt the dirt. It's like, and it's like, and those aren't really interesting. Like you know, in, in my I, I mean, well, I mean, again, it's like the dirt. Like that's like was like that's sort of like the landmark, right? And then there were these other books that came out. It's just sort of like, yeah, I mean, for me, it's like it just was. It was just sort of been it should have been like read between the lines like of course these yeah. guys were partying their asses off of course they were doing all this stuff you know whatever like you know but it wasn't you know it wasn't um i was much more interested in the music and and, and to be honest with you that was part of why people trusted me to tell the stories that they knew about the band because i was very clear with them and i think they you know it was obviously an article of faith on their part but that i was going to be like that it wasn't like it wasn't going to be like some like hit job or tell all like be right. like it would have it been like you know it would have been you know, it would have taken away from what, even if I had wanted to do that, which would have been stupid, it would have taken away from the, the, the basic thrust of the story, which was that these guys, you know, uh, go from playing, you know, nightclubs and can't get a record deal to two years later, they're blowing away, you know, Boston at Anaheim Stadium. Well, you were honoring them with that book, which I I thank you for, because it was a story that needed to be told and you told totally. it through the I mean, right lens. Yeah. Totally. I mean, I think that's the thing. It's like, um, you know, and a book like that could be written about the Beatles. It's the same. I mean, wherever, like, yeah. again, I'm not saying like Van Halen's on par with the Beatles, but there are, there are plenty of, um, ascent rock stories or actors or stuff like that, where you, you should pay tribute to what they, yeah. you know, wherever they come out of, come out of wherever they did and sort of make it make a difference. And I appreciate you saying that, but it was, to me, it was, it was a cool, cool story to be able to tell and actually as i went along you know i just wanted i wanted the book to be enjoyable i mean that's one of the things i wanted to get across to you as i've said it before but you know all the stuff about van halen was always so like just freaking weighed down with so much negativity it was like oh this person's fucked up on drugs and this person's this and this person, yeah. you know this person hates this person and you know all this like just all you know, oh, this this person's crazy and like all this you know at this period of time or whatever it's just was also negative and i just like you know what this is part of what was a appealing to about this part of the story it was like it should be fun it, yeah. it was fun and most people were like well you, you didn't talk enough about this and like i'm like well it was meant to be a fun book like what's not fun about the fact that you 
you know, you 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 leave Pasadena like with a U-Haul truck, and then you're playing stadiums at the end of the, the tour. I mean, what's not fun about that? It's like, you well, know, it should be fun, right? It set the ground. Van Halen was fun. I always thought Van Halen was like, as you know, as a fan, it was like the most fun band you could watch. And so it's yeah. like all that, like sort of like just the well. The, so let's talk like, about that. What did Van Halen mean to you as a fourteen-year-old uh, boy? You know, it meant just I was a you know a, a kid who. um wanted to find something musically that really, you know, excited me. And there were plenty of bands I liked. I mean, there were a lot of bands I really liked and I had bands that I was into, you know, um, but I don't think I'd sort of settled into like what my, like at 14, like what my band was, you know, there were bands that um, my uncle had turned me on as he was older than me. And he was kind of like a big brother figure and he turned me mm-hmm. on to some bands and stuff like that. But like, it was like, it was always like, it was his generation of bands. It was like the doors. And, you know, I, I liked those, I had some of those tapes and stuff like that. And, and uh, there was whatever that was on the radio at the time. I was like foreigner and stuff, whatever you would hear in 81 or 82 on the radio. And, you know, I was still pretty young, um, but it, there really was, hadn't been like my, like my band. I'm not saying I was like searching for that, but I think that was sort yeah. of like, I was, I was ready. I didn't probably know at the time, but I was like, Oh, I saw, you know, I saw jump on MTV and that was it. And then it was just like, you know, it became everything to me in terms of um, how much to sort of appeal to my sense of humor. I mean, I think that's one of the things I really, as a teenager, I, I, I liked was Roth's sense of humor. And then yeah. um, I had already, I think probably started messing around and with an acoustic guitar. And I saw Eddie Van Halen. I never, I would, you have a guitar on the wall, um, like you know, nothing unique about me. Like I, I gave it my best. I was never very good, but I was always like the, like sort of like the classic, you know, I was like, I'm peaking at my intermediate level. And I was like, I was like, always my, I was like, always like peaked. It was like, I was like stuck. I just couldn't get yeah. you know, as hard as I tried. I just musically didn't have the talent to get by that, but you know, I still could play a little bit and it's fun for me. And it's but just, it, if I'm reading between the lines, it spoke to you. Yeah. It's like their music exactly. spoke right. to you. You right. identified it with it. Yeah. Right. And like where I was at in terms of like my interests at the time, which were like, Let's be honest, like drinking beer, girls, like all whatever that was when I was 14 or 15, like all those other things. And that was like, you know, that was right in that, that fit right in the wheelhouse. I'd like that, that yeah. just locked in with that. And uh, I saw Van Halen at um, the Meadowlands a few times in New Jersey, but I saw them with Raw in 84. I was, okay. yeah, I was fortunate enough to go. Um, and uh, yeah, that was, I mean, that was, that was it. I mean, like, you know, that was, you know, that was that for me, that was the, the thing. Um, just the whole sensory experience of that, just like being so loud and just so raucous yeah. and all the things that just Eddie's playing and Roth's stuff he did. It was just, just absolutely, uh, you know, it shaped your, it shaped your, your taste. And I had seen other concerts and a few other concerts at that point. And, uh, but it was nothing like, I mean, something no. like this. And that was sort of like the, you know, that was the whole purpose of the way that Pete Angelus and Dave and, uh, they, they staged those shows. It was meant to be an absolute assault, assault on the senses and that's what it was. And so, yeah, there yeah. you go. A game of Van Halen. You know, it, it's for me, it, it, it just took over my life and it was just, it was like everything. It was, um, how do I say it? It, um, it, it captured your attitude for me as a musician it was everything that I had wanted, you know, the, in my opinion, the greatest guitar player one, right. you know, I, I right. we, um, so I, I told you I have a 12 year old daughter. I took her to the, um, well, 
So let me let me go back a little bit. So 5150 came out. I didn't know it came out. And I knew what again what jump was and I heard Panama, but just I wasn't at that maturity, not even maturity level. I just wasn't ready for Van Halen yet. You know, I was 12 when 1984 right. came out. I was at my desk. I've told the story before on the podcast. Uh 1986, February-ish. Um, I'm doing homework in my bedroom and I heard this knocking on the door. I got up, no one was there. I sat back down and that's when I heard the keyboard intro to why can't this be love? The knocking was the, that knocking part, that intro. Oh yeah. There was something about that. It hit me in the chest. It grabbed me and I fell in love with that very instant. And I, and you know, I, I took in every little thing about 5150. I must've listened to that album hundreds of times then now it's thousands. But, um, and then after that, I went back and listened to the whole other catalog. Right. Um, right. Yeah. And I, I got into that and I, it was funny. I had like the fair warning summer and you know, that's when I had my first job cutting grass and that's what I listened to on my Sony Walkman. And then the other ones and I stole my aunt's, um, Van Halen two LP and, and fell in love with that. And, um, it just became for, it was just, I heard and I forgot who it was. But they described Van Halen as a verb, like we're going to go Van Halen tonight. You know, it, it, it kind of summarized a vibe, right. how you were feeling, right. what you're right. going to do, a right. lifestyle. Right. That right. Kind of right, 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 and, right, right. We're going to go. We're going to get the tape in the tape deck. Going to you know find somebody who has a twelve pack of, yeah. of one Bud, Budweiser and go try to beat some girls and, and just whatever. Right, drawing that logo on your book, you know, yep. your, your book cover at school and having it in your life. That was like a badge of honor of some sort. It was just like a club that we were all in. Um, I didn't get to see 5150. My parents wouldn't let me. I saw Monsters Rock after that. But the one thing, I mean, w- what did Eddie mean to you on a personal level? You, you've talked a lot about Roth, and we'll get into that. Right. Um, but uh, what did Eddie mean to you? Well, I mean, he was he was the guy who really made me want to play guitar. Now I got into like, you know, the whole, um, like all those guys, Lynch and Demartini and whatever. Again, I never could play anything like those guys, but just like whatever, like I could play like, you know, half of lay it down or some of the rhythm part. And it was like, Oh, I'm great. You know, I was like, here we go. We're on our way. Yeah. Um, you know, but for him, he is as the guy who wrote all those songs, the music for all the songs that I loved and was always the guy who seemed to be, pushing i mean it's like being, it was like being a fan of like michael jordan or something like that it's like you never you know it was nice i'm a jets fan so i've like had like basically like 50 years of misery as oh, a Jets. Sorry. Well, yeah of course right? you should be it's 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 been you know it's been pretty uh uh i've been a fan since 81 and they've never been to a super bowl blah 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 but like you know something like that if you're like a fan of van halen really up to like again up to wait arguably up to van halen three it was like van halen always won you know what I mean? It was like they they won the Super Bowl, but you know, it was like every album went platinum. Every tour was great. It was like you know, it was, and that's not why I became a fan, obviously. But it was yeah. like that was like it was like this guy uh, could do no wrong. Like, you know, changes singers, and it's still like more of the same good stuff. So it was like you know, sort of like that same sort of you know admiration for the it's like you know the Aaron Rodgers factor. It's like he's the guy who like oh you know everyone like thinks like oh he's gonna suck this year. This new thing is gonna you know they're gonna get Sammy Hagar and it's gonna suck. And it's like well you know you may artistically think it sucks but it didn't it didn't suck on billboard it didn't we're suck. gonna it talk didn't, about know, that right you know so that was you know that was kind of a you know um an appeal to me that it was like he was a uh, you know he he delivered right he delivered great stuff yeah um 
Yeah. It, it, as again, as a musician, it's, it's funny when I look back at the progression of what got me ready for 5150, um, my sisters introduced me. I got in trouble in kindergarten for singing, come on, baby, like my fire. You made a doors reference earlier. I got in trouble for singing <laughs> that to all the girls in class just cause I have two older sisters. And, uh, funny. and then I got into survivor and everyone dumps on survivor they were actually a really good rock band like you my know, wife's like a huge corporate survivor rock fan band. by the way my wife's yeah, a great. huge survivor fan yeah and then you know again something to talk about survivor acdc and van right. halen really are the biggest bands that switch singers and actually you could argue became you know i'll just say took it to another level but um interesting but then my first concert was brian adams um, great one and then I got into, you know, playing guitar when I was around 83, 84. But then again, hearing Van Halen, it just was like, okay, all that brought me to this moment right here. Right. And it just changed my world. Um, but that being said, got a couple questions involving Van Halen. Again, I told you where I kind of came on board. Mm-hmm. Why is it that the Van Hagar stuff is widely ignored or not appreciated because I will argue this and I've, I got into trouble. I interviewed Adam Reaver at, uh, from FU tone mm-hmm. and he's got some fan. Uh, he's got some fantastic stories, sure. um, but we've kind of talked about it and I, I got so much crap for that comment of what I, a couple things I said about Dave current Dave. Um, this is where I stand on it. And I wanted to get your opinion because no one writes, you've written your book, but no one writes anything about the Hagar era, which I kind of can't help take personally. And let me give you some context. Um, again, grew up with the Van Hagar stuff, went back and listened to everything else. I love it all. I'm a Van Halen fan, not a particular singer fan. I'm an Eddie fan. But um, I was fortunate enough to do work with them. Um, I own a video production agency, but I started in the business by sneaking, not sneaking in, but, um, I found out they were, I live in DC. They were playing here in 1995. I called Warner brothers because I just thought, why not try? I told him I was writing an article. Uh, I needed photo credentials in your interview pass and backstage passes. They're like, send me a, um, a, le- a letterhead. Well, this was in 95. I didn't have a computer. I don't think, and I didn't know anyone had a computer with word processors. I didn't even know what a letterhead was. So I went to the U- University of Maryland to the Diamondback. Never had set foot in that <laughs> office before in my life. This is when great. I wa- when I walked in there, there was like this half wall that divided the waiting room with all the like the the right. cubicles, and there was a stack of letterheads sitting on that half wall. I went in to see the editor, and I I switched it with them, and I said, "Hey, I'm writing this article for Warner Brothers. Do you want it?" I, I mean, I'll let you. I'll let you publish it as well. I'll just, you know, I just graduated. The, loved the idea, but I stole that stack of letterhead, threw it on my backpack, and that started my career off being a concert photographer and worked with the guys, um, two tours. And then that later turned into when I um, had always been in video and editing and producing yeah. and, and gradually went up that ladder. I produced an independent film, got Sammy Hager on board with it. They, they um, did product placement for the film. He gave me a song for free for the end credits. Um, cool. I still have the signed contract that was faxed to me that was written on a napkin. Um, I did a film festival. So th- there's been these spans of years where I've had, I don't want to say close 
contact, but worked with them. I've worked with Dave in the past. So I kind of have an interesting outlook on personalities, like physically working with the guys sure. or then, and then putting the music together. And my personal experience is Sam's amazing guy. Um, would do anything for you. Dave, you've said it maybe a couple times, kind of a knucklehead. And I, I think I may be putting words in your mind. Corky, I think you said. Um, my experience is that, working with them. But in terms of the Hagar catalog, what I hear is that they went soft and they went pop and it's all keyboard. And the thing I can't, and I wrote some notes down for you because you are the guy to talk to about this. I can't wrap my head around this. So prior to him leaving, you can't get more pop than California Girls and Just a Gigolo. When True. he did his, his albums after that, after he left, Going Crazy, That's Life, Just Paradise, just like, was it? Just like Paradise. Just like Paradise, yeah. But even in Van Halen, Dance the Night Away was a pop tune, Could yeah. This Be Magic, Dancing in the Streets, Pretty Woman, Big Bad Bill, Happy Trails. It goes on and on and on. Eddie has said in interviews that he presented Dreams to Dave, that he True. presented Love Walks Into Dave. Those out, those songs are going to be on their 5150, a Roth, you know, 5150 album. I don't know what the shock is. Is that the this music was written by Ed? It was going to be on those albums. There, you know. I don't understand the problem of why people hate on the Hagar stuff. When why they, right? I would argue that. Yeah, there was some keyboard stuff in there. Those songs were going to be Hager, raw songs anyway. But they had some kick-ass songs. Every album went number one. Um, I, I don't understand the hate. Can you explain that to me? I mean, I don't know if I really can explain all the hate. I mean, I think, I, I just mean like, yeah, it's real. And there's definitely, there's like definitely people on when I tweet that like, you know, are 100% Dave and get like offended if I like, you know whatever like if you're like uh whatever i mean there's just it's just like it's like very it's almost like a political thing right for people it is um, very much political yeah so um i think part of it was that you had i think a lot of people who are van halen fans are obviously of our generation meaning we like were around for like the breakup in one way or the other and remember yeah. like alex saying this is the real van halen and like dave saying you know sammy just sings about love or whatever like all these like all this sort of like pro wrestling style like yeah bickering back and forth which you know was actually um pretty much of a, a constant thing for about two or so years until to be honest that dave became a non-threat that basically you know for lack of a better way of describing it that that Sammy fronted Van Halen won the war, right? By 1991, for sure, uh, you know, Foreign Lawful Carnal Knowledge comes out and that blows away uh, a little ain't enough. Right? Little at that point, enough, yeah. right. At that point, Dave's career has taken some some blows. Um and there are not, you know, we don't have time to talk about the reasons for that. There's there are there are many reasons for that, I think. Um, but you know, I also think even to this day, you know, um, I think, I think, you know, obviously Dave, Dave was making provocative, like kind of nasty comments about Sammy, like in 1980, like you can read old interviews and like, like, like British magazines. And he's like, 
you know, Sammy loves his Trans Am more than he loves his wife or whatever. Like, you know, Sammy should marry his Trans Am. Like, oh, there's all this stuff going on. Like, Sammy, you know, Dave already had this stuff going on. But, you know, today, I, I do think, for whatever reason, maybe it's because Roth has gotten more, um, more like a hermit in some ways. Like, he doesn't do as much press as he used to. It's like yeah. Sammy, you know... Sammy doesn't exactly like mince his words when it comes to David. If he is mincing his words, he's like still like, you know, oh, you know, whatever he says. He still adds fuel to the fire. And I'm not saying like that this could be anything more than just like a business decision. Like, because he knows, like, if he says Dave's a weird guy and I never I don't could think understand. It's that. I don't think it's uh, that. Yeah, it probably isn't. I mean, I think I probably isn't. I he think probably, he just you know, wants to. Yeah, I, I think it's just he wants his fair share not not in a personal he wants that catalog now keep in mind from 2007 on that catalog didn't exist okay none so, of it was remastered so none i speak out of somebody who knows no more than anybody else who's a van yeah. fan i've read my read what i've read yeah again i don't know sammy i've never talked to any of those guys or any of their management or anything like that um i i suspect there's some unfinished business from the first breakup that's financial. The first, the first Hagar, like before 2004, the 95 one, 96, has probably oh, yeah. never been resolved. Again, this is not from any information Sammy that and I Van have. Halen you're talking correct. about? Correct. I'm correct. Yeah. I, I suspect that there was a, a something that went on that probably had to do with money. Again, yeah. Was it the whole Cabo Wabo sale? That... I I suspect. I mean, I think yeah. I think even Sammy has talked about that in his book, if I recall correctly. He sort of like hints that that could have been a factor. Yeah, um, yeah. So I have no idea why Ed and Al and now Alex have never said, you know what, we should put. It's kind of crazy. We have this album fifty one fifty. It sold five seven million copies. We should put out a new version of it ten years ago. Why they didn't? Do yeah, that. or before Dave. Before Dave came out. Well, we they won't even license it out to TV or film or anything. Supposedly, that's true. That's what Sammy yeah. says. And I okay, so we'll take it on his word. That's what's true. Look, why wouldn't they do that? Uh-huh. Is it just like artistic? Like we hate those songs now. I mean, well, I doubt it. So I th- Ed, I, Ed wrote them, and Alex wrote them. I'm yeah. sure they don't. They don't think they suck. My so my my point. My point is. Let me finish my point. My yeah. point is like again. This is not. This is my opinion, my speculation, and maybe, you know, talk to Sammy. You'll talk to Sammy in a week. He'll say that's bullshit. Um, Is that they don't want to reward the person they feel who financially got their, got the better of them. Yeah. It could be completely wrong. I don't even think it's anything like, oh, it's the brand or anything. I don't think that's what it is. Maybe it is. I don't think that's what it is. People People aren't confused. I mean, if 5150 came out, Two years ago, um, you know, as a re- I mean, we're just like, oh, it's a catalog release, whatever. They don't have to, they don't even have to promote it. It just could come out. Yeah. But it's very, you know, you can't get, right? 5150 is, hasn't been released since like 87 on CD or something like that, right? In the state. Yeah. It's really interesting to me. And I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. I do know that the Van Halen brothers thought that Cabo Wabo were, was Tate the club, what they weren't seeing their investment. And then when the breakup happened, they wanted to be bought out. And they, I, I think from what I've um, not directly heard, but read and Mm -hmm. read between the lines that, Mm -hmm. you know, they were pissed off that as soon as they were bought out, it became a really huge thing. And then became a massive 
brand. Yeah, and they right, lost right. money out on it, but that was their right. choice to sell. They could have. I, I, I am. I, I get it. Yeah, I, it's really I, interesting. I, I own some Apple stock, and and I owned a, not a lot, but I owned I owned enough shares of Apple stock that it like I sold. Yeah, I sold in '97 or something like that. Sure. I sold if I held those stock today, you know, whatever it'd be like worth oh, quite yeah. a bit of money. Um, my choice. I get it. I mean, I understand what you're saying, but that doesn't mean I still don't sit back and, you know, what I don't think about it often, obviously, but like thinking about it now with you, if I don't think about it, it goes, God damn, I'm pissed off. I sold that stock and would like to, to be well, pissed about that. I think the other side of things is, is that they had to walk away from that because Dave just can't sing Sammy's catalog, the Van Hagar catalog. Well, he was never going to sing it. I mean, no, even if but, he could, right. Never going to sing it. Right. That's true. I mean, right. I, I agree with you. So they had to ignore it. it. And I think his ego, uh, this, uh, this, I'm trying to keep this positive, but I don't think Hagar can sing Roth stuff willingly, even though there was a lot that he didn't want to sing. But I don't think ego wise Roth will allow it, would ever consider singing any Hagar stuff. So as a fan of both versions and even a fan of, I mean, listen, I will, my favorite thing, you know what my favorite thing now is, is that there's an app on my phone and then there's a guy on YouTube called Digital Splits. He does really good versions, but he pulls out different um, recording streams. So you can get just a guitar, but there's an app called Mosey's. What is it? Yeah, Mosey's. And you can basically create your own mixes. It's not perfect, but you can create your own mixes. I've just been listening to isolated guitar stuff. My favorite thing is just to listen to the drums and the guitar it's really kind of re-exploring um, and re, you know, a, a new experience on how to intake Van Halen. Sure. Awesome. Sure. But anyway, um, a couple things before I let you go. What's the deal with Michael Anthony? Why did they hate? What was the rift all about? Do you have any idea? Why did they hate him so much? I mean, I don't know anything more than you know than yeah. you or anyone else would know who would read. I mean, I think, I think at some point along the way. There was a fraying relationship with Sammy, and that I I believe from what I I've read and gathered was that Ed expected loyalty from Mike. That Mike, it was basically him or me. I don't think you know in so many words, but like that, I think that was the thing. And and at that point in time, Ed was not um, touring and was not looking like he was trending towards making a Van Halen record and, and that Mike was basically expected to be in kind of a holding pattern. It's like, yeah. you know, it's our band, the brothers, band. like it's, I mean, that's one thing's clear. It's a brother's band, right? It's, it's whatever anyone else might think who had ever been in that band. It's the brother's band. And so I, I believe when Mike was like, I, I'm not going to just sit tight and wait, that was considered to be a breach of loyalty. I mean, sure. again, that's, um, but even prior a, to that, Ed tried to replace Mike two different times, and right up, right around the fair warning time, and before that, I, there's something about Mike that they just rubbed him the wrong way. I don't know. You know, he he made that comment. There was a, a an interview that Steve Rosen did in around 1981 with Ed, and you know, one of the things that's been kind of interesting in the last three or four years is there's been a lot of interviews that had been edited, obviously back in 1981, that journalists started to put out like like oh what was off the record in 1981 i'm not going to have off the record anymore and he made the comment yeah. about like you know basically mike doesn't pull his weight um yeah this is ed's word so ed doesn't mike doesn't pull his weight he's bought a porsche you know and he doesn't write or something like that and so yeah. 
you know, um, at least Dave pulls his weight. Um, you know, so that's the other thing too. I mean, I look, um, I, I can't, I can't explain it. I mean, my, you know, I think like everybody else, anyone who's had an interaction with Mike Anthony and a, you know, fan personal setting or whatever would be like, you know, this, Great guy. this guy seems, yeah. And yeah. so I, I can't, and I, you know, I'm not going to try to explain it beyond that because I don't know. Um, but yes, it, it, it was a long running thing, but it definitely came to a head around that time. And I think, you know, I think understandably so. I mean, I think Mike made the choice to say, okay, I'm going to go with the guy who wants me and wants to move forward with playing and doing what he wants to do, which is he's, he wants to play, he wants to make exactly. records. And at that point, yeah. And at that point, like 98 to, and again, I don't remember the exact timeline of all this in terms of that, but basically from like, you know, it was like that, that middle period of 2004 ish or whatever. There was sort of like, you know, that Mike came back or whatever, but it was, yeah. it, it was like Mike and Sammy came back, but it was really sort of a, um, you know, yeah, it yeah, wasn't sign his rights was, away and wasn't was an easy, it was not an easy r- arrangement to come back. And well, so I, I call those the lost Eddie years because somewhere around, I think it happened. I think it happened between 96 and the Gary Sharon in that was that mm-hmm. MTV David Lee Roth kind of quasi reunion. Right. Eddie became very angry is the word I would use. And he just had like kind of a attitude and Eddie was always the fun loving right. greatest guy in the world kind of vibe. But then there was this, I don't want to say it's my band. He just seemed angry for the, just angry, um, unhappy. Yeah. I mean, I'm a pretty big believer in, again, this is my theory is that the, yeah. is that the, uh, you know, that the relative failure of Van Halen three had a very, very negative impact on his psyche. Um, this is a guy who everything he did went platinum mm-hmm. and it was lauded as a, a genius, which he is. Yeah. And so the album comes out and for a whole host of reasons, I mean, um, you're trying a third singer it's 1998 it's not 1988 anymore um the, the you know the, the you know you you made the decision which i think in in like in retrospect probably wasn't a wise one not to have a seasoned producer with a new singer and like the, in the room you have a guy like i shouldn't say seasoned producer you had mike post is basically a soundtrack mm-hmm. you know a composer who's, who's produced some stuff before but it's not a rock rock producer yeah. um in the room and you're probably Eddie probably making like 99% of the calls about what the album's going to be like. It, you know, it was, you know, you could sort of, you know, it'd be like, if you lose the big game, the Super Bowl, you can kind of go back and say, why did we lose the game? You know, I think for Eddie, it was more like he couldn't quite process how it could happen, how it went, it went, um, so badly. And then you're, then suddenly you're in a situation where you're not going to work with Gary anymore. And it's like, what are we going to do? can't get a fourth singer i mean yeah you know you you, you, I guess you could but you, you really couldn't um and it was you know then they were they were uh the brothers were in a definitely in a, a difficult spot in terms of like what to do next and i think that was probably you know finally i i can only imagine you know right with with uh the way i talked about lead singer disease and these other things that like you that was a incredibly frustrating and again he's not the only rock musician who's who's non-singer has ever felt this way but you sort of you feel held hostage. You're like, yeah. for lack of a better term, these guys are, you know, I, I'm not big fans of these guys, their personalities. I don't really like them that much in general. And I have to work with them because it's the only way we can have a band. Yeah. 
that, meaning just, like I mean like I mean like Sam and Dave, not, not Mike so much. Like maybe maybe Mike too, but maybe it's been Sam and Dave. Like yeah. basically, like we're not fans of either of these guys. We don't want to work with them anymore. We're like kind of like locked in. Yeah, it was just it was troubling for me because it just it it was almost like watching a different human being interact and be interviewed, and it made me sad because it, it just I don't know. It was magic before, and then it became dark, and you know, and then yeah, the cancer. Yeah cancer happened yeah. the 2004 yeah. happened the divorce happened he had some rough times but um yeah it's just it's uh and and you know for someone that was so prolific and has a wall have a wall of tapes behind them to not only make one record in 21 years 22 years mm-hmm. is sad because and and a, a lot of those albeit he was suffering you know dealing i think you know, the relapse of the cancer sure. the last 10, you know, however many years. Sure. That had right. There was like right, a number of medical things that yeah. went on. Right. So that took a lot of time. Um, and, you know, I personally w- was disappointed in the three. I would have seen Eddie anywhere. And when they did their tour in 2015, I think my daughter was five at the time mm-hmm. doing the math. Right. And I told my wife, I have to bring her because I, I don't know what, why. I mean, I didn't have any, I didn't see it. I wasn't reading tea leaves or anything, but I just, I said to her, literally, this might be the last time. Yeah. So I need, to, I need her to be able, when she's 80, to say, I saw Eddie Van Halen right. live. And it meant so much to me to, to take her there. But um, it did make me sad, even though I saw them 2007, 12, and 15. I did want that one last Hagar reunion. Sure. And for me, and we, you and I may differ. This is the one thing I'll say about Roth, and I would love your take on it, because I, I know you're a Roth guy. When I look back at the Roth stuff, and, you know, it's, it's – and I, I want to go back to one thing, his disdain for Hagar. I think that had a lot to do with – I would surmise he knew or found out that Ted was trying to replace – for the Van Halen 1 album, was trying to get Hagar in. Because there, there is that story of Eddie right. saying no. he never understood why he had this disdain for him. And th- there was that concert in Anaheim that ACDC, Van Halen, um, I think maybe Journey. I, I could get that wrong. But Ed came to Sam's because he was a big dressing room because he was a big Montrose fan. And Dave refused to go in. And then Ed never could understand why he would talk so much shit about Sam when they had never met. I'll, I'll tell you that when I, when I did the book with Ted, Ted's recollection sure. was that and didn't know now okay. there were a couple people who did know that ted was to- was toying with it the idea it wasn't as if like ted had all these meetings about it but he mentioned it to a couple people in passing I, you know so is it possible that somehow uh, he, he got around ted you know and think about it i, I believe ted me- recollection is correct because it wouldn't make sense that if you approach this the, you approach this guitar player Right, you just sign this band. You approach their guitar player and say, "I want to fire your singer." The band could be like, "F this guy, f this producer guy. We want another producer, or we don't want to like ba- basically completely as much as they may want to make a record for Warner Brothers. It might just poison yeah. the well." And so Ted recognized that, and you know, Ted um, said that it never was his 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 the way he always related the story to me. It was always something that he like mulled over talked quietly with a couple of people who were not in Van Halen, who were like, he worked with basically about it, but you know, 
basically never went beyond like thinking about it. Like, you know, if Dave can't improve or something like that and, and Dave yeah. did like basically. So is it possible? I mean, I've thought about that. Is it possible that somehow some of the whispers got to Dave? Yeah. That's, but, but not through the band. That's, I, I mean, that's not impossible that that ended up happening. Um, so there's a Steve Rosen interview from 86. They were mm-hmm. in a hotel room four in the morning and Ed references that and pretty clearly right. states that, yeah, they, they knew about it. He knew about it. And um, I even want to say that he referenced it was a record deal issue that, that he couldn't, that it didn't happen. Um, yeah. But, I don't, I don't, I mean, I, I have a good, I have probably have a good, a, a good inkling about how he found out by 86. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know. So I'm not going to say, but sure. um I mean, it's an, it, look, is it possible that those guys found out? Yeah, that they found out in 78. I Possible? I, I, I mean, it's possible. And that's not the way Ted remembered it. I think I yeah. do know how they found out by 86. But that would have been a different deal because at that point Dave was gone. And it's suddenly right, it's right, like, right. oh, it, Sammy's in. Like, oh, and then someone might say, guess what? Um, yeah. Well, here's, know, my words, take on, yeah. here's my take on Dave. Back in the 80s, late 70s, 80s, early 80s, I don't think anybody could touch him. He had a unique voice, a unique style, unique sound. And he was at that point in time, I would say maybe the greatest frontman, certainly for that era. But looking back at it all these years, 2021, when you look back at it, in my opinion, it doesn't age as well. And it seems even more, and maybe that's reflected by the recent Dave, where it's very vaudeville, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And when you have that slide mat in front of the drum riser and the special shoes and, and the Fred Astaire stuff, to me, that's not Van Halen. And I've always said that Dave has the Samson complex, that all that kind of happened when, when, he, when he cut his hair and it seemed very, I don't know. He just mm-hmm. lost his thing mm-hmm. when that hair was gone. And, you know, and, and that might sound silly, but I think there's something to that. <laughs> and maybe it's colored by the 7, 12, 15, Dave. But I look back at the early Van Halen and I think, oh, I see the vaudeville in that now looking back do you feel that same way do you think it still holds up were you happy with the 7 12 and 15 dave so you know i i i always argue with people about this on twitter but i mean i i think arguably 2007 was the best roth sang since since like i mean the certainly since um maybe like 79 or something like that on on like that he really like I was actually shocked at how well Roth sang. Now I um, had heard, like you probably, lots of recordings of him on the 2002 tour and all that. You know, basically his like Sam and Dave stuff and the solo stuff where he'd play like you know fairs and stuff like that. And it was it was you know it was a it was at times a uh, a uh, difficult listen. Like some nights where it's like, oh, that's you know that's, that's yeah. not sounding good, Dave. That's not you're not in, you're doing your best delivery, but. um you know, he came out in 2007 and was like in shape and was hundred percent serious. And like, I was almost like, you know, I don't know. It was almost like he wanted to basically leave everyone with the memory. It was that Dave, when he was given the chance to be back in Van Halen, 
delivered one hundred percent. And look, I mean, you might disagree, or other people might disagree, but you know, again, I'm not saying like 2007 Dave was like better than 1978 or 1981 Dave or 86 Dave in terms of a, like a live performer in the whole. The whole well, he was never a great live, live singer. He was a great. Had, I yes, I would agree. Like, I mean, I yeah. think I think people sort of do a broad brush and said never. I mean, this is a whole other rabbit hole. We don't have to get down, but yeah, sure, sure, I think, sure. I think I think I think yes, Roth definitely should be um lauded more for his overall performance and his basic Correct. persona and the whole thing yeah. than like he wasn't he wasn't freddie mercury right Correct. but i thought instead i thought there was a definite drop off when i saw him in 2012 in tulsa um there was a lot of this you know like screaming about the blowers i don't know if you remember that he was like sort of the air conditioning was getting to his voice and he was having i don't I, and I don't, I don't know if it was just sort of he was had a chronic voice of throat issue, but it was he, he was very agitated about that, and it was and he had it was noticeably um, he had lost something off his fastball. Let's just say that, and that was yeah. you know something that um, was noticeable. And then you know as as um, time went on, I mean, definitely you know he was still doing some of those the, the acrobat. Obviously, over that last seven or eight years, there was less of the. Acrobatics, for lack of the physical, the physical yeah. stuff sort of began to, to drop off. Did you feel um, it got more sticky? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think there was a trend towards Dave deciding, okay, I can't jump off the drum riser anymore. Again, is it like was it like a, a master plan? Like this, maybe it was. Maybe right. it was like he sat down and was like, okay, jump off the jump off the drum riser anymore. So I'm going to do more something like out of like a 1940s. Yeah, you're right. Like a 1940s like musical. I mean, he did yeah. more of that, like you know, the tap dance type of stuff and the sort of facial expressions and the and the jazz hands and the whole thing. Um, but you know, to me, yes, that is not necessarily like Roth wasn't doing that that stuff to the same extent he was doing in 2007 or even even 1990, sure. whatever. You know, it was different. It was a different deal. But you know, it's sort of like it feels like it's like it felt didn't feel contrived to me because I'm like. Well, this really is a guy who grew up watching all that stuff on like all those dance, you know. Well, that's my movies. point. It's like it's not like it's not like he was like, I need a new 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 uh gimmick. I'll just like imitate yeah. old movies. I'm like, I'm like I he, think you know, he became he more comfortable. Kid, right? I think right. he became more comfortable with who he was. Right. And that stuff came out because he lost that machismo. So that stuff was kind of left over because I guess my point is when you read old Roth interviews, he said he loved that stuff. He loved the Fred Astaire and the vaudeville. Right, right, right. right. And now the, the three last tours, I've gone back and looked at video of the old stuff and I go, yeah, I see it now, but it, it was kind of masked by the long hair and the, you know, the girls and the, this and the, that. And I, I, I think we were left with that. You know, I, I just had a problem with, especially that last, the, the live album where I couldn't for the life of me understand why they released that. Um, the that's a whole nother, I, I, I'm not a fan of that record. Yeah. Um, they sound amazing. You know, I've, I, like I've always said to people, I mean, I'm not a rock truther. I mean, like, you know, I'm not going to like, you know, I'm not like, uh, where I have to like, feel like I have to defend everything. I mean, I was, I, I was, I am, it's inexplicable to me why that record came out. Yeah. So the way it did, I think there were a lot of other things that could have been done, um, you know, for wherever Roth was at that moment in time, he was, he was, um, he wasn't singing his best. I mean, that's, that's, that's a, um, careful way of wording 
but I think you're, you know, he was not singing his best and to release something from 2015. I mean, I get it. Maybe like the Van Halen's meaning all three Van Halen's decided, well, we're playing better. Wolf's playing now with after um, playing with us for eight years. He's sort of at his, his peak that he, of his playing and we're all like locked in together. You know, yeah. um, I, I would have, you know, I, I would have advised you know, me advising, but I think, release something from 2007 because as an overall like of the whole thing yeah you could probably find a night where ed was on dave was on wolf played great alex played great and then you could find where something would have been much more it was it was i just i still i mean i was just i can't i can't that's why you need that's why you need that what is it mosey's uh, because I've taken that album and removed his vocals from it and this is no slight to mike but Wolfgang in 2015, or I guess that was the 2012 tour that they did that Japan live album for. I think so. Is that right? 13 or something? I can't even remember. Something what it was. like yeah. that. Yeah. Because yeah. the 2015. Yeah. Anyway. So when that live album came out, um, the three of them sound amazing. And mm-hmm. just with Wolfie's um, maturity and experience behind that instrument, um, man, it was like Van Halen on steroids. I get then, it. I mean, I that, and that's the explanation I can live with. Sort of saying yeah. like it's a vote. If everyone's voting yes, there, you know, that's. Um, I don't know. It was just. Yeah. It, I, I think yes. I I I buy that theory that this was where those guys had sort of felt like they had recent instrumental peak for them that they'd been together. Wolfie was older and had played. You know, had had more road years. Right, he played with them for longer, sure. and obviously was like more locked in with his uncle in 2013 than it would have been in 2007 or eight. Just so, you know, it's just natural. Like you play with anybody for longer, you're going to get better. Well, to bring this full circle, how do you think history will look back at Van Halen as a band? You know, um, it's interesting. You bring that up because one of the things that really has been, I don't think surprising if we think about it since Ed has passed, it's really been, much more about his legacy than the legacy of the band. Now, I'm not saying that to belittle anyone who's been in Van Halen or anything about the band, the band Van Halen, but obviously his passing coincided with basically Van Halen's over, right? That's kind of like those two things sort of happened the same day in so many words is that, you know, um, there was never going to be another Van Halen tour once mm-hmm. the day that Eddie Van Halen passed away. So, you know, um, which is crushing, by the way. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's it is crushing on a whole host of levels, and so to have that be the thing that people are focused on, I think it's interesting to think about how people are going to to um, to assess Van Halen because I mean, I think there's a way of assessing Van Halen without sort of making Ed the only thing to assess, as we've talked about. I mean, there's all these mm-hmm. other pieces of the Van Halen story. But I think for a lot of people now, that's sort of the way they're looking at it is the legacy of Eddie Van Halen and how it should be celebrated and he should be lauded and praised. And, um, you know, for all the things that you and I understand as fans and, and even like, you know, my mom or my wife understand, like they understand what Eddie Van Halen meant to music. They don't understand yeah. the way we do, but they get it. I mean, they understand not just from hanging out with me, but like, they know all oh, the songs and like he did that, those, those crazy things on the guitar, like they get it. You um, might think this is I'm crazy, but I think he's actually underrated. And I'll tell you why. Be- because you know, I I look back 
And what, what gives me a lot of joy now is, is to, I mean, YouTube is the biggest rabbit hole in the world where you, and things are coming out more and more at, at a faster pace. And I think he's underrated for a couple of reasons. Um, he, well, I mean, he changed everything. He changed mm -hmm. music. He changed guitar construction. There was no aftermarket guitar part ever. I mean, it just, and then you look at every every strat with a humbucker in it now mm -hmm. is derived from Eddie Van Halen and their super strats. The Floyd graphics Rose, on the graphics on the guitar. I mean, yeah. even like not the stripes, the whole idea of like putting graphics on guitar. Yeah. Basically, he was the one who sort of made that a thing. Yeah, and the the Floyd Rose tremolo, he had a yeah. lot to do with helping mm -hmm. Floyd refine that. And and I even look at I did a thesis in school once about um just race relations because when he did beat it white kids weren't listening to urban stations and black kids weren't listening to rock stations and the fact that eddie van halen played on michael jackson's song changed everything and it you know that ushered in um you know i i i, I would argue to say that if that hadn't happened would run dmc and aerosmith risk doing that you know and I, I, mean, I know, think it's something to think about. I we have to have another. We have to have me back on. We can talk about that for now. I've got thoughts yeah, yeah, on yeah. that. But I tell you, the um, you know, even like listen to like Billy Ocean's um, here's Caribbean Queen or which one it is. There's one of those songs where there's like an absolute Eddie Van Halen solo in the middle of it. You're like, oh my! God. You start to listen yeah. to it. There's uh, there's a number of songs like that. Like Maniac. I talked about that at the end of Van Halen Rising. There was a number of songs yeah. that came out that were yeah, Maniac um, is a great example. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, Black Cat would have been yeah. like basically like by Janet Jackson would have been like, okay, we want we need to do like a a beat it for Janet. Like, what are we gonna yeah. do? We're gonna do like a rock song for Janet. Um, yeah, there's a number of them like that. Um, so what I would would say is that the underrated aspect. I mean, I think I think definitely a definitely seven years ago, eight years ago, there was like this sort of like ah, oh, whatever, Eddie Van Halen, whatever. You know, I think there's been you know, on, uh, like it always happens, unfortunately, when someone of that skill level and ability and influence in, in uh, a field passes, there's a reassessment and sort of like, sort of like, oh, well, actually, he did more than I thought, or she did more than yeah. I thought. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think more, you know, it, it kind of like, as you said, they kind of bring it full circle, the Roth Hagar debate, everyone kind of really, you know, needs to understand not you but you know ordinary people you get it is like the common denominator with ed now i mean that was the common denominator from from you know from day one they decided to play music together in pasadena all the way to the very end and so that's the you know that's really the thing that um should be sort of i think maybe played up more you know like those that you know as much as the other guys were obviously important obviously they were but um you know, it, was get, it was the ed and al show how long do you think it's going to take for the Van Halen fans to get off Wolfgang Van Halen's ass? <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, I think it's the the weirdest and saddest thing I've ever seen in my life. It's I mean, crazy. I actually think it's like I actually think that Wolfgang has a pretty good handle on it. Like, actually, like I think a lot better than I would have. I do. I, I, I if it was B, I would be like, what is wrong with these people? And he's like, you know just because you're fans of my you know you're fans of my parents and so you feel like you feel empowered to like give me advice or some or yeah. you, you whatever like all this he's like i think he finally he, he i shouldn't say finally i think um for me he finally clarified a lot of it it's like oh yeah it's like people feel like beyond just sort of the internet bs of like i feel like i can say anything you know i can 
know, I can tell Aaron Rodgers he sucks on Twitter, right? Like it's like the most ludicrous thing ever. It's like yeah, it's, it's, like, it's yeah, wacky. I'm like sit on my couch and like I can tell like whoever like they're terrible or they're great or whatever. Um, you know, I think he's got a you know kind of a good handle on that. Um, you know, I think I think um, part of the thing is there there was a lot of built up resentment, unfair, all With of it. I think. Stuff. Yeah, because I mean, come on. I mean, you know, if my dad said, Hey, you're going to come work at the family business at 15 or whatever, you know, and like, you're like, okay. And then like, you get the work and you're like, what happened to the other guy? They're like, well, we, we got rid of him. It's not like the 15 year old is responsible. Right. It wasn't like he was like, here's what's going to happen, dad. You know, it's, it's so, I, I think that's the thing that's really, there's that whole, that whole part of it too, which is just, just, it's inexplicable to me. Like one could logically think that like, you know, like you really think like, I mean, if you want to be mad at something at somebody be mad at, at an owl, I guess it's their band. I mean, if you want to be mad about like mad about it, I mean, I think honestly at the time, like Mike had, I, I, I you know, was Mike shown the door? I mean, I think that's pretty clear that he was, um, in some ways, but also, you know, he made his, you know, he made his call, um, yeah. you know, where he went. So, I, I mean, I of, of course I would have loved to have seen Mike, on stage with those guys. Of course, right. I would have liked to seen a Van Hagar reunion. Right. But at the same time, being a father myself, you know, I I think at that at that time of Ed's in Ed's life, he would have been dead a long time ago if Woofy wasn't in his life and if Woofy wasn't on stage with him. I mean, the 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 stories that you hear about the drug use and just everything else. I think Woofy saved his life, um, being with him and being on stage. Um, Sammy said a really good quote, because one of the things is people don't understand why Mammoth WVH doesn't sound anything like Van Halen and why he won't play any Van Halen songs on tour live. And Sammy said, you know, if Eddie did everything his dad did, he would have been the greatest clarinet player in the world, but no one would have wanted to hear Eddie Van Halen so play clarinet. Funny. Right. So let him you know, Frank Sinatra's son, son basically tried to sing like Frank Sinatra, and it's like, it's not good. Nobody bought it, right? Yeah. Like, so it, like, I'm, I'm not even saying like like that. Wolfie would even want to do like. Is anyone surprised that a kid who was born in 1991, you know, didn't like listen to like Led Zeppelin and like Deep Purple and like what you know what Ed and Allison to do like make yeah. that sound like you know they, you know of course not. It's like you know so I, I, I and I you know I gotta say um, I just saw him in Wichita and I was like you know. The thing I was thinking, it's like, even if he wanted to, it would be bizarre in the context of that band. And I mean sure. that with all respect to Wolfgang, because if he wants to do whatever, whatever he wants to do, like he yeah. started, he said, I don't want to play Van Halen. He said, tomorrow, I want to play Van Halen. Okay, I'm going to play Van Halen. It's, it's Do whatever you want. Um, it would be bizarre to play Panama, right? It would be like, because the music doesn't sound anything like that. Like yeah. their music, it's like, not anything, you know, it would be like... Um, you know, it would be like a jazz band that plays like fusion jazz suddenly just saying, we're going to play like, you know, like my dad was in a disco band and we're going to start, we're going to play this disco song. Like in the middle of the set, you'd be like, well, it doesn't really fit with the rest of it. It doesn't fit. Yeah. It doesn't fit. They're like, their sound, there's not a single, I shouldn't say it. There's, there's very little that Wolfgang does on stage. There's a few things. And I mean, it's as a, as a, as a sign of respect to him and admiration for him. That is like, that is in some ways an homage or a few things, an homage or even like resembles his dad's playing that much. Mm -hmm. It's like, 
not even similar in a lot of ways. <laughs> it's yeah. like, like, what do you think? Like, what, like, why would he do? Why? You know, you the scary thing about it though, is? why do you want to just, cause you want, you want the, the son to play Go, go see someone else play Van Halen. I see, think there's lots that, of guys I, play Van Halen. Go see them. I think people just don't want to say goodbye. And I get it. Like it, it, I, so the first concert since COVID and it's certainly since Eddie died, um, which I was just devastated. And, um, I ended up just driving. I, the only thing I could think of doing is getting in my car, putting on Van Halen, and dri- taking a two-hour drive right. as I like sobbed. But um, I went to that M3 festival in in Columbia, yeah, yeah. Maryland, right. and I'm throwing no shade at Warrant, but my daughter loves. I mean, we both love Night Ranger, and so we went to the the set uh, well, the last day Night Ranger, but we caught Warrant, and Warrant. Uh, Warren's guitar player again, not throwing any shade, but it, he was doing the tapping thing, and it was so very obvious of I'm doing a trick now, and then he would incorporate the tapping and then go back into normal playing, and it just really made me sad. It was the first concert that I had been to since Ed died, and I, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm never going to experience that again. And my thing, especially before shows, especially you know, really when I was even filming, but just as a normal fan of listening to him warming up backstage and you know you hear it over the pa as he's walking up and that my mom would call it noise but that noise yeah yeah that noise that would come out it's so identifiably him Mm -hmm. that even if people try to play it they can't because there's nuances and it's in his fingers and it's just terribly tragic and sad to me that we're never going to hear that again live um but it was just even more sad when you said we'd go see someone else play it that bums me out because seeing that warrant guy just do it it wasn't a part of his playing he might think it was but it was so just right and it's not going to be the same thing exactly it's not going to be and this is not any 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 disrespect of wolfgang it's not going to be there's no that's the thing it's like i think he's even said that it's like you can't just paste over the fact that somebody's gone you can't go well we'll just you know if, if x person plays this if i play or wolfie plays it or someone else it like makes it okay yeah you know it's like it's like you know it's like if your wife dies and you marry like a woman who looks like your wife your, your dead wife two months later it doesn't bring back your wife it's pretty like, creepy oh, well it's right well right and and understandably so right you'd be say that's weird or that's that person has issues and that's that's the thing and so yeah i think um you know wolfie sort of implied that he was like gonna once the tour was over, he was going to like, you know, basically just deactivate his Twitter, which, you know what, it's, that bumps me out. I mean, it's actually like, you know, he, he, you know, he, um, it, it, he's like, you know, obviously Sammy runs his own Instagram apparently, but I don't think he runs his own Twitter and stuff like that. But like, there's never been like a member of Van Halen, like on Twitter, right? Like never, that's my main thing. And it's like, it's fun. I mean, like whatever, like it was, you know, especially, um, before he was touring and stuff, he would kind of hop oh, on. There. Yeah. Sometimes he would do different things and kind of like you talk see about inside fifty one fifty, right? Or and he yeah. would like be like talk about his music and stuff like that. It was like I was like like whoa, yeah. You know, Eddie and Alex would never do this, right? No. So, yeah, but I, you know, um, well, here's the scary thing about Wolfgang. Um, I think it would even be weird if he pulled out one of those bases that he used on tour with the stripes. I just, I don't know. just, that would feel right. weird to me, right. even though he has right. every right in the world to, to have that, but that's so Eddie. But what's so scary about Wolfgang is if he wanted to play Van Halen stuff, he could easily do it because he's so good. I've, 
never i mean he's clearly a product of of those van halen genes he is just an amazing an amazing musician and god bless him i feel bad for him um but he's doing his thing and i love it and i love that it's it's kind of like when a buddy dies and you kind of want to look after their kids as you know your buddy goes and and it's right. it's nice to look over there to see Wolfgang is there carrying the Van Halen flag, which is ironic because people are apparently this week giving him crap for using that name, and he's like, "Well, it's my last name." <laughs> like, it's like I don't mean to laugh, like you're laughing too. The same reason it's like so because it's so ludicrous, right? It's yeah. Like, are you people serious? They are. They just you know. I, I I am a diehard Van Halen fan. I've never understood Van Halen fandom. Like I, it's it's one of the most hateful right. groups that I've ever seen and witnessed. And it's sad because I've always felt I had a healthy approach with for it. I, I have my feelings on Dave, but I still listen to it. Sure. I still love it. It's a part right. of my fabric. Right. right. And but, you understand that I like, you know, like, I, yeah. I, you know, I got into Dave Van Halen in 84. Roth was out a year and a half later. And I like, you know, embraced the whole, Hey, I went to see Dave solo. I went to see yeah. Sammy with, with Van Halen a number of times. And I was just like, yeah, it was fun. Yeah. I loved it all. Well, listen, I've kept you too long. Um, how can people find you? On social uh, media. Um, yeah, I, I'm on Twitter at Greg Renoff, and uh, I'm on Facebook. You can find me Instagram at G-R-E-N-O-F-F. And so, yeah, Twitter is probably the most of Van Halen-centric. I mean, that's what I would say if people want to, like, you know, get Van Halen content. That's what I deliver, okay. the Van Halen memes. That's what I get. That's what that's what I have done with my PhD. I'm the guy who like comes up with the Van Halen meme or whatever, you know, and like send it out to the world. So if it's like somebody's got to do it, right? It's so like, my like, my last question, uh, <laughs> sunsets down. Um, yeah, I do. A lot of, I do a good amount of work for them, um, video and animation stuff for their podcasts and other projects. Oh, um, cool. But I have yet to actually go there. Drew keeps asking, "Hey, you got to come out. Got to come out and see the studio." You were there. You were interviewed. I was. By Drew. What's it like? to kind of be standing there on that hollowed ground. Wow. It was, it was, uh, it was amazing. Um, for me to just like drive in the parking lot, I was like, Holy shit. (laughs) You know, um, but you know, to meet, to meet, um, Paul, um, and I met Drew obviously, but Paul as being the owner and has a family history of inheriting the, the uh, studio from his dad and everything. And then to walk, to talk to him, and then to walk into the different rooms where um, you know, Templeman had told me about making records. And I talked to Don Landy about making records there. And that whole, uh, you know, had that whole tape in my mind about that. And then sit and we sat in Sunset 2 and talked. Um, it was it was surreal and it was a, amazing I mean, to just recognize that the studio has been around since like the mid-60s. And like Disney records were made there. Like early Disney stuff was made there. Like bread knobs and broomsticks. Like all the films we like our parents probably watched like the live action Disney stuff from the sixties, like a lot of the songs were recorded there and to sort of have that whole history go back um, to think about that. And then to, to um, just, just, just to be in a place like that. I mean, it's like, you know, it it was, uh, it was kind of hard to wrap my head around that. I was like, you know, for what I, obviously it's just a room, right? You go in this room, you sit down, but it's like the room that like, Jimmy Page worked in and the Stones worked in and like, you know, like all these other, you know, Red Hot Chili Peppers, you go down the list. And it was like, it was pretty, uh, it was pretty awesome. But um, yeah, I, uh, 
I, I can't wait to go back. So yeah. tell me when you want me to carry your, I got to be the guy like, you know, without the backstage pass who was like, what's he doing? I was carrying my mic. You know, he's got my well, the backstory got my was I was supposed to film your, uh, your interview oh. when you were there. Yeah. I was going to fly out. Ah. And um, Ted didn't come and it became a thing where they didn't want to fly me. It's a whole thing. But um, do you, do you have any kind of communication with Don? Yeah, I mean, I, I email with him on occasion. Sure. Is he ever going to talk about how's he doing? First of all, I, I think he's fine. I mean, I think he's okay. like, you know, he's, um, he's doing fine. I mean, I think he, uh, on to the second question. I mean, I can't speak for him, but people ask me that all the time. And so I'll just say that, you know, if you think about how few times Don Landy's ever been photographed, I think that's the him. answer to the question. Um, yeah. you know, there were certain guys who work, behind the glass who enjoy the spotlight like engineers or certain, you know, and there's, you know, and that's, we can think of the people and that's not at all to criticize them. Yeah. They have sort of embraced the role of like wanting to be a public thing for that. But, um, I think you're, you're talking about a person who's, um, I mean, not interested in that. Like right. that's not, you know, um, and I think, think that's one of the ever- reasons. Could we ever persuade him for a historical purpose? Because when when he go, and I'm being serious, when no, he I know, go, when, when he goes, see to me, I tell Drew all the time, and and we haven't even we haven't even talked about your uh, Ted Templeman book, which I've absolutely loved, read it several times. Oh, Great book. You. So we we'll have to talk about that another time. Anytime. But I've told Drew so many occasions on so many occasions. No offense to Ted, but I want to talk to Don. I want to hear from Don because it was they were the, the book. They were the they were the <laughs> twins. You know what I mean? Right. And they did so much behind the scenes and behind backs. And you know, just there's they were like this, built the studio. I mean, everything. Right. Right. And I right. just on for his, an historical purpose, when Ted, when he leaves this earth, that kind of that's gone. I, and I, I would am, love you're to talking, hear from you're her. talking to a guy's historian. I, yeah, I completely yeah. 100% understand what you're saying. Um, I just, my basic gut feeling is that that level of scrutiny is probably not what either of them would want in that setting with cameras on them and just talk yeah. like that. That would be my, my, I can't speak for them. Like tomorrow you might find out, Oh, guess what's going to happen? Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, they don't, they don't clear anything with me. Um, I just, you know, chat with them on occasion. And so I, I just, that's my, that's my basic feeling on it that in doing the book with Ted, I mean, obviously we worked in the book together and we talked about what was going to be in the book and we were, you know, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a different thing than sort of like sitting down and like having someone maybe ask you questions and it'd be under like basically under the lights and doing that type of stuff. I mean, Ted yeah. never really did. Like Ted was like a more of a public persona, obviously in the seventies and eighties, but he didn't like, you know, he did a few radio interviews, but he never did that either. I mean, it was like, you mm-hmm. know, talk to, you know, two or three quotes in Rolling Stone. It wasn't like he ever was like, you know, and you know, we're, you know, here we are live at MTV with Ted Templeman in the chair or something like that. I mean, that wasn't his, you know, that wasn't his thing. And certainly Landy, you know, never got near to doing that. So, um, you know, I, uh, I, I fully understand the importance of what those guys did. And like, I, you know, I'd like every, every fact and, you know, a bit of information that we could ever, you know, uh, know from those guys. I want to know it. I mean, obviously you and everybody else. 
Um, it's just that, that you know, I, I, I can't say for sure, but you know, I think that's kind of the general thing. The, my general takeaway on Don is that that seems highly, highly unlikely that he's ever going to yeah. want to sit like, you know, they go to uh, go and sit for an interview. I'm like, I'm not saying like never visit or like whatever. Like, I mean, it's not like he's like a hermit or something, but I like to sort of be like sit in this chair and answer questions for half an hour or an hour. I I think think that's that's asking for something that's not going to be comfortable. That's my that's my feeling on that. And it's you know, it's no offense to anybody. Like, I don't sure you could be like have Oprah there, and it's not going to be comfortable. That's I've been told that that's just who Don is, and Don doesn't like to talk and. I completely respect that. I have my I, own I can, I can tell you that that is, that's, you know, um, you know, he, he talked to me for both of my books. I mean, he, yeah, we talked for Van Hill rising. It's fine. He, he, you know, for a book, he, he helped immensely with the Templeman book. I mean, you know, yeah. I talked to him very frequently in terms of like, just like helping me kind of, you know, he wanted to help with the book. He's like, Oh, he forced has a book. I want to help with the book. And like, he would like help me flesh things out. He supplied pictures for the book. So it was never, you know, it's never like he's like, I don't want to talk. You know, it's just yeah. like he doesn't want to sit in the chair probably and have right. a camera on him. Does Don it's totally different? Does Don realize what significance or how significant he is or he was to music? Does he realize yeah, I think he I think he does. I mean, I think he gives, you know, a tremendous amount of credit to the I mean, he gives all credit to the artist. I mean, like, you know, yeah, he's yeah, like, yeah. I'm the guy who got the sound. I think I think, you know, Don is not an egotistical person, so he's never going to be like, well, I have this many gold records. I mean, it's like, sure, like, sure, I get sure. it. like ludicrous to even think of like someone like even like imagining him, like even like hinting like something like that. But I think he recognizes that he made some good albums that yeah. he recorded some good stuff, like, you know, from Captain Beefheart to the Doobie Brothers to Little Feet to the, all the Van Halen stuff to Carly Simon. I mean, all the stuff he did. I mean, it, you know, he did, you know, Arlo Guthrie. He did. He recorded Neil Young. He recorded the Everly Brothers. He worked on the Third Doors record. Um, things that people don't even know he did. So I think he's yeah. very proud of his discography. Um, you know, but you know, on the other hand, he's going to tell you that you know, you know, I, I just did my job. I went in and I was, yeah. you know, it's like I just did my job. He's not going to, um, you know, there are other engineer slash producers who who are more interested in making themselves the center to the story, right? It's just not, sure. that's not, just not, he's not, that's not his thing. I mean, yeah. it's just not his, I'm like, I, you know, I would email him and say, this is amazing. And he'll say, thank you. But it's not like he's like, well, you know, of course it's amazing. I'm, I, know, I just want him to realize that of how yeah, special he, he I, is. Cause he's, think, he, he helped change the world. I, I think, yeah, I think on some level he, you know, he understands the, importance of what he did i mean he right. you know there were like a whole host of gold and platinum records that he did on the 70s and 80s you know even putting aside van halen as we've already kind of touched oh, on yeah. so um but um did he take yeah, Ed's I mean, death pretty hard i don't know what the relationship was like but yeah i mean i think again i don't want to speak for him but i, right. I talked to him fairly soon after that happened pretty soon after that happened and you know, I don't know Don super well, like face to face and stuff like that. Um, but yes, I could, I would tell you that he took it. They had been, they, he and Ed had been in communication, like texting and whatever, talking on the phone and like over that, you know, there had been that 
that relationship was fine. I mean, I think that relationship was always fine on some level. I don't think it was ever yeah. like, as far as I know, like it never like, again, I don't want to speak out of, out of school here, but I don't, I never got the impression that Don is the type of guy who's going to like hold a massive grudge against somebody. It just didn't seem like that was in the, in the, the thing. So it's like, okay, sure. Sure. Yeah. I just, I got just a different didn't... direction. I think that, yeah, I think there was, I think there was, I understand what you're saying. I think, but I, yes, there was definitely, um, he and Ed had been in community. He and Ed and, and Ted had, had all been some one degree or another talking to Ed. Oh, great. You know, in the years, the years leading up to the, you know, the last few years, again, there may have been, there may have been years where they hadn't talked at all. I don't know, but I can just tell you in the year two or so, whatever, before he passed two or three, I know that there had been like text messages and hello and stuff like that. Like I'm not privy to what went on, but I knew that like, sure, you know, sure, like sure. they were like, um, you know, Ted would say, Oh, you know, Hey, you know, I, I texted with Ed the other day or something, whatever, like whatever that means. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, it's like for, for a 77 year old man to say, I texted with Ed, like whatever that means. Like they sent like, you know, a meme to each other or they said hello, or I don't, I don't know, but there was, there was definitely, um, were there you know, emojis? A level of <laughs> like that's that's the story. So we need to find out what emojis those guys <laughs> use. But you know, I, there was that, there was, um, you know, it was, I'm glad for both all those guys. I think I, um, I, I had mentioned, publicly after ed died that templeman had seen eddie you know some months i mean it was probably close to a year before he died that eddie came and visited him and they sat and they talked and they hadn't sat and talked like that i don't know exactly when but a long time i mean oh, wow. probably since the 90s and so that that was like that was um that gave ted a lot of like closure in some sort of mm-hmm. way that just sort of happened sort of spontaneously where like, you know, it's like, Hey, I want to come see you. Okay. Come, come see me. And they, and they got together and sat together and um, yeah. talked. And I, I told the story about um, that when Ed walked into Ted's condo in LA, Ed had this eyes on this old Fender guitar that Ted's had since his Harper's Bazaar days. It's like a Fender Jaguar or something like that. And he was like, what's with the guitar you know it's like oh it's and ted's like i gotta get, get the guitar center to get set up it's like really it's just way out of tune and doesn't i can't tune it and he's like got a phillips head screwdriver i mean that's right and like it, he set it up for, for ted and like that was very moving to me and ted was very moved by that like it's sort of like you know it was just sort of a, a thing a friend would do he's like here you know he's like here i fixed it you know it's like you know it was, it was a really nice thing i was just like i think was probably something like he couldn't stand to see the guitar not like playable so he was like yeah. get me a screwdriver you know, you have a, you have a, like a, I don't remember what else, like a screwdriver, maybe like a, do you have a, like a Swiss army knife or something like that? I was like, what, like those things, like whatever, like Ted, like, a, you know, like a spoon yeah. and like a, a knife and like a, a screwdriver and he, he fixed the guitar. You know, th- um, I think that's what bummed me out about those dark years was that he was such a genuine guy. And I've heard so many stories of literally just meeting him on the street and then he'd run back to his house and grab him something of his and give him a guitar, give him an amp or everyone from complete strangers to Jerry Cantrell or guys that he would play golf with, you know, it just, you know, brothers of guys you would play golf with. And he was just such a genuine and giving human being. And, um, you know, I, 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 it's, it's good to remember that stuff because he was, yeah. Just, I mean, the story I was told too, was the, uh, the one, uh, one of the guys from Pasadena who was on the crew with them in the, in 78, um, and in the club days, they, they used these four, three or four guys, including Rudy, who wasn't as roadie at this point in the nineties, played, oh, used to play golf. Yeah. He used to play golf in Pasadena. And I guess they would constantly constantly when ed was off the road they would leave a message or two sometimes say hey we're gonna go play golf if you want to come he never came 
And then one day he showed up on, you know, whatever, one September, he showed up, he was home, he came and he showed up. And one of the guys who was playing in the foursome was a guy that, that he grew up with. And they said, Hey, you should, you should, you know, should congratulate him. It's, it's, um, it's Dana, his name is Dana's birthday. Oh, when's your birthday? You know, it's, you know, it's tomorrow. Hey, happy birthday. You know, Hey, you know, uh, you still live in over there? Like it's your parents. Oh yeah. And you know, whatever. I can't remember. He inherited his parents' house. Like, Oh, okay. Like the next, so the, I, I talked to Dana about this, and Dana said the next day, like a UPS truck or like this, one of those white delivery trucks showed up. Yeah, like DHL he, or something. Right, like right, like right, exactly. And he was like watching, and like suddenly the guy gets out, and he's got the like the pull at the, the metal tailgate, and he's like raising it up, and he's like, "What the hell's going on?" And he's like <laughs> thinking he's going, and the guy Dana told me this guy Dana told me he said, he said, "I thought my wife had ordered a new refrigerator." We had talked about it, and I was actually pissed off. I was like, "She went ahead and bought that refrigerator," and tell me he's like, "You know, like we're not ready for the delivery." And it was like a stack. Like the guy played guitar, right? He was a guy who grew up playing sure, guitars sure. with that. Like it was like a stack and like three, like, I don't know, music band guitars. It was like the whole Eddie Van Halen starter kit, but of course, like the one yeah. that would cost like twenty thousand dollars or like that. It's like, yeah. yeah. That was so like that was yeah. So that was the type of thing yeah, he would do. And like I you know that story when I was told that really stuck with me. It was like, you know, it's just like, you know, he was like it was a surprise, right? He was like, Where do you live? You still live in okay, cool. I'll come by sometime. Like he was just like like scoping it out so he could figure out the address and probably call yeah. Rudy or something and said, Yeah, is he still living over there? Okay, we gotta get the address and we're gonna, you know, send him a birthday present, which was like all these guitars and everything. So I think um, one of the sweetest stories was the um, you know, the, um Eddie was the first person to call Dweezel when Frank died at right. like four in the morning. But later that day, I think it was Jimmy Page's um rock walk at guitar center in hollywood and there was mm -hmm. that big thing sean all these guitar players are there neil sean and and uh right. luther and all that and and eddie went to pick up dweezel or certainly invited him i don't know how he got there but um it, that was all done to distract him because his dad died that morning sure and th there's there you know with everything now kind of getting released on youtube slowly but surely there's this news feed of like just eng footage of that event and there's a good 15 minutes of just ed with his arm around weasel just whispering in his ear and you can only just imagine just you could just tell that he's taking care of a buddy in that moment and it's mm -hmm. just for me it's just sweet to see that that's mm -hmm. the that's the side of ed that although very briefly and and sure you know far away um you know that's that's the ed that i when i met him uh -huh. a handful of times in work that's the ed that i knew and that's what I, you know i choose to remember so Right. What's next for you, by the way? Yeah, I have a. <laughs> I uh, I have a uh, an idea for a book, and uh, you know, I've uh, I've kind of gone back and forth with a couple of different ideas. COVID sort of was a was a uh, we uh, had the kids home for the duration of the year, so there was a lot of uh, work stoppage around here in terms of like projects for me. Yeah, I got some little little writing done here and there. Did a couple of. Uh, articles and things but um yeah i you know it's it's maybe a little bit something a little more out of left field for for what i would uh maybe be expected to. yeah it's it's not going to be i don't think that's what's going to be i mean i think look i mean i'm going to do a van halen book again i mean there's no yeah. question and like that's like obviously that's that's something that seems logical right but um you know that's not where i'm at in terms of that i just for me it seems i don't know i'm just not there with being like this is like you know, kind of launched to do jump to do jump in to do another Van Halen book just because of the stuff yeah. that's happened in the last year. Just in, you know, it doesn't, I, I, it's my issue. Like I'm just not a, like ready to do that. So, um, 
but yeah, I think, you know, I think people will hopefully dig it. It's still going to be some, you know, some years off or whatever. It's just, uh, the Templeman book came out. I mean, literally it came out and we were still like, I remember debating, like, are we going to do the book event COVID? It's like, you know, he was going to, we were going to do, we had plans to do Grammy museum. And there was like, they were, you know, there was a number of events that we sort of had lined up, you know, like three or four of them, including sure. a book signing that was going to be like, you know, Ted was going to come out and that all got scotched. And then it was like, suddenly so the basically the book came out thank god it was done it came out and uh then you know the pandemic started and so for me that was sort of like the end of the road in terms of doing a uh working on a book and like uh, yeah. so in other words i'd like to be farther along where i am now but um, you know you don't have to tell me what i don't want you to tell me what it is but is it like more traditional history minded no it's uh, music i mean it's now it's, oh, okay it's like yeah it's uh, yeah it's um it'll be rock related and i think it'll be i think people who are you know van halen fans will be interested in the book i mean I definitely yeah. think there'll be there'll be um some appeal there there's always some um definitely some some ability to kind of dive into that aspect of uh, of things but it's yeah it's just not going to be like another you know um the templeman book was sort of a good good segue for me to sort of like bridge out and do something a little bit different i mean that was sort yeah. of you know, when that became the opportunity came along, that was a, you know, that was obviously something I was super excited about. And that was a, like, a, you know, it's like no brainer. It's like, Oh yeah. Ted Templeman wants to do a book. Okay. <laughs> and he wants me to write it with him. Like, Oh yeah. Where do I sign? You know? So, um, but it's, uh, yeah, I'll keep you posted on it. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's something that I am excited to do. So. Great. Well, having work that's exciting is always a good thing. Well, listen, thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's been a great conversation. And um, and uh, we've been trying to get this going for a while. So I really yeah. appreciate your time. Hey, it was a pleasure. Anytime. Anytime. Happy to do it. All right. And the next time either I'm in Sunset or you're in Sunset, let's meet up there. And Let me know when you're going. I will. Like I, will. I said, I'll carry the camera. Drew's going to be like, who's this dude? Oh, he's my assistant. <laughs> like the dark sunglasses on. Like that. Next we thing need you know, someone in, to distract uh, those guys so we can go into the vault and like start right, in, right. i'll be in like studio one like taking selfies or something like that that's what i told him it's just just leave me alone for a while i just want to go to the closet because no oh, god probably those microphones i mean or any of that stuff but particularly the microphones they have like the prince microphone and the beach uh, boys microphone i guess i got to see it their dna's in these mics you know so it's just like to me it's, it's it's amazing better than a museum yeah it was it was like better than a museum and like yeah a lot of ways i mean i've been to some great museums that was like up there like yeah so yeah. awesome all right well thank you so much pleasure hey.